Welcome to the 35th episode of the ABC Pod, the adult book club with Taja and Russell. This episode features the classic novel of South Africa, The Power of One by Bryce Courtenay. We both love this book, so we spend a lot of time gushing about our protagonist, PK, and the incredible people he meets along his journey to adulthood. We encourage you to stay throughout spoilers, which are between the 1 hour 17 and 2 hour 27 minute marks. We also discuss some of our unconventional friendships, similar to PK and Docs, and finish with our usual segments. So with that, let's hear it. Well, Taja and Russell, they both love reading books. Taja and Russell, they both love reading books. Well, what do you do when you share such love? Well, you start a club, you start a club, an adult book club, an adult book club, and a podcast. Welcome to the 35th episode of the ABC Pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. I am Russell and she is Taja. Hi. Hi and welcome back everybody on this episode. We are very happy to be bringing you The Power of One by Bryce Courtenay. But before we get into this classic, uh, it has been two weeks. Taja, what has been going on in the uh, world of Vermont? Well, let's see, last Friday when we did not record a podcast, Barry and I went to get matching anniversary tattoos because it was kind of the anniversary of our wedding. It was a little delayed from scheduling issues. But yeah, we've got got some new new ink and that was that was a fun little experience. Our tattoo artist is really really great. I say our. It's he's my guy, but obviously Barry went to him this time. He's really into like reading and books and stuff. So every time I'm getting a tattoo, we're talking about the books that are we've read for the podcast or anything that's really interesting. And I had given him the recommendation of the Grim Noir series. Nice. And he loved it. He's like listening to it with his kids now. And it's super cute. In any case, that was a fun little experience. And let's see, we did some, we've had like really nice weather, which is global warming but it's been kind of pleasant it's definitely weird but i guess i'm not complaining i don't know but we went to a new golf course so barry could do some golfing at a different course it was this gorgeous locate gorgeous location in west bolton so it's beautiful mountains everywhere it was past peak foliage season so it was really just mountains full of sticks but it was i i can't imagine how gorgeous it must be during peak or even before or even slightly after just not as far after as we went but this course was really hard (laughs) he still did really well which is great he's a pretty good golfer but I had a lot of fun driving the golf cart and drinking my wine and finding balls because that is my expertise we don't ever yeah that is my job I mean I'm honestly paying my way with that because like golf balls can be expensive and now Barry never needs to buy any ever like we need to remove the ones from his golf bag because the pocket where we put it is like bulging they're so full when i first started golfing uh with my uncle i was like 14 or so and all i cared about was collecting golf balls so i had a 55 gallon drum at oh home my god that i would just dump and i got probably halfway full uh but still oh it's a lot of golf balls but that's yeah. it you just get like maybe a five gallon bucket something in the garage where you just kind of that is what we should do bag out uh every once in a while yes. 
Yeah, we definitely need to start doing that. I mean, it's to the point where on the scorecard, because of course I'm the scorekeeper. On the scorecard, I keep track of his actual score. And then I keep track of lost balls and found balls <laughs> to make sure that we're breaking even at least or doing better. I mean, there was one time at another at our normal golf course where he lost like one ball on a hole and I found 23. So, so I mean, do, do you mark it that way? Oh, I mark it that way. Each hole. Lost per ball, hole. See, that's, ball. I started laughing as soon as you started talking because I just pictured the scorecard like Barry four, you know, meaning a score Taja 27. Like, oh, no, it's um, it, um <laughs> she's gone to get it, folks. Barry lost, found per hole what he got what I found, what he lost. <laughs> and then like it's tick sees while well, it's like super gnarly out there right now in terms of finding balls. Plus like all of the leaves on yeah. the course make it incredibly difficult to even find a ball that he's hit, not alone balls like in the woods and stuff that I go look for. So that makes things, I, I put in less effort these last few times than I did during like the summer when you don't have to, play where's my ball yeah and then the other thing that's really exciting for me is barry and i have been watching star trek voyager which is like totally weird barry has never it was like a point of pride for him i think to say that he's never seen a star trek episode from start to finish and <laughs> the other day he came home and i had it on in the background um i was doing something else and he like got kind of interested and now we're binge watching it and it's like the happiest happiest day for me <laughs> when he came home were you doing that like look look over your shoulder like don't make it look like you're excited no i fully expected him to be like and we're done now what are we watching instead yeah he was like asking me questions about things and i was like uh is this a thing is this a thing we're doing and then the other day he was like should we put on some voyager and i was like yes <laughs> yes we should so yeah, that's been really, really exciting. I long for those days. I don't think I'll ever have them, but I'm Probably very happy not. for you that you have that experience with your significant other. I have been watching Strange New Worlds after seeing them at um, Dragon Con, and that is my first Star Trek experience. Are you actually. liking it? I really enjoy it. And I think a big part of it is I really like Anson Mount. I'm sorry, Daddy. Oh I think he's incredible. And also I would have kept the hair and the beard from the first episode because he just looked smashing that way. Um, yes. Although he does have just like a really pretty face. Yes, and you can great. see it better without without the beard. Absolutely true. Uh, but that is my first Star Trek experience. And I will be uh, doing a little bit more with it too, I think. Um, I, I don't know where I'm going with it, but we'll see. And also I don't have someone in my house that loves binging things with me so we'll see how that goes um and also it's football hockey season so you got a lot of other I things do a lot of sports play. watching right now yeah i do i i will say that voyager has just like a very nostalgic thing for me because that's like i grew up in a household like my dad loved tng my dad hi dad if you're listening was a huge tng fan when i was growing up he was wharf one year for oh halloween my God, was, do you have a picture somewhere Oh, God, I'm sure there's a picture. And James, get us the picture. Right? He was also Lucutius, which is the board version of Picard, which he, like, made all these. It was very, like, steampunky. He, like, made all these bits for his board costume. It was freaking baller. I hope there's a picture of that, too. I'll, I'll have to text them about this, but 
huge, huge fan of Star Trek. I even remember buying him action figures. I think of Locutius and I think he had a Guinan. I think I got him a Guinan action figure, which was Whoopi Goldberg's character, by the way. Okay. Um, so I grew up with like TNG in my life. And then Voyager was like the Tamara Pierce version of, of Star Trek for me, like strong female lead. And just, oh, I think that Tom and Bellana were my first ship ever, which is just really exciting. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm very excited. And for Barry and I to be watching it. And I hope that if you do delve into other Star Treks, that you watch some Voyager and you enjoy it. Okay. We'll see. Uh, that is way down the road. But Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's seven too. seasons of Voyager, too. So it's like a big thing to find out. And this is taking me like a month and I'm still not through Star uh, Trek. And there's only the one. And there's only one. So, yeah. So be a little bit longer. Uh, for me, my big thing. Uh, last two weeks ago, we had the, everyone knows, obviously, it was the release weekend for NHL 23 on all your favorite consoles. So, everyone knows. Uh, me and my nerd friends, we all got together for Friday and Saturday night and did a old-fashioned LAN party, which in the gaming world, you used to have to get together and play on one system or you would connect systems and play in your house because the internet wasn't really a thing for gaming back then, so... This is different because we all bring our own TVs and systems and we all play on the internet, but we're all sitting together. All bring your own TVs. Well, I ended up bringing TVs for people, but uh, Shabar came, shout out Var, and he brought Yay. his own TV and system and played with us on Friday night. So we had some good team building uh, experience there and it was just a nice weekend where at the end of it, I was supposed to hang out with, uh, or we were supposed to hang out and watch football on Sunday and I ended up leaving because I just looked at myself and was like, I am so gross i've been drinking for basically 48 hours and i need to go home so i picked up lunch for amanda on the way home got home was having lunch with amanda and got a snapchat from roy that showed our friend pete had showed up from north carolina as a surprise for everyone and got to roy's house and nobody was there so i ended up driving back to merrimack for about an hour and a half to to watch sunday uh, football with them and begrudgingly drink some more beer you know i don't like doing that so yeah <laughs> Uh, but all in all it was it was a good weekend and then not really much else has been going on I've been really uh I worked on the driveway this week and did some other stuff around the house that I've been kind of postponing so that was nice getting some accomplishments done but the other thing as a shout out to Ted Behrman from the last episode I decided to try pickles and peanut butter as that was his favorite snack and I will say it wasn't anything that you would expect it to be either way if that makes sense like it was pickles and peanut butter it was exactly like, how it sounds. It was like you were eating two separate things. Well, yeah. And the like only they didn't thing, do anything it, for each other. Yeah. It kind of like neutralized or like it kind of leveled out the flavors a little bit. I think where like the beginning, you got a lot of that dill pickle. And at the end, you got peanut butter. And like that was kind of all it was. So I was going to try it as well before this podcast. But the only pickles that I have right now are like a Trader Joe's version. Shocker. But I really do think that it needs, like, Clausen's pickles, I think that's what it needs to be. I mean, just, I don't, they're, they don't have, like, the snap. It's true. Yeah, I, and I'd be, I think it'd be interesting with, like, a chunky peanut butter as well, because then you get more crunch. That is all I well. have, so. It'd be interesting. But this is a shout-out to our friend Joe, who responded to our Instagram post, which apparently she eats peanut butter and pickle sandwiches as one of her favorite sandwiches. Are so you serious? Like, sliced pickles on a, like, is it? Is there jelly involved? Is it just I, a butter sandwich? She did not get into it, Joe. Feel free to let us know. Oh, I have so many questions. I, I pictured like, you know, I, like I do it, peanut butter and banana kind of Oh, yeah. Oh, that's pickles. so good. Yeah. With honey? Drizzle some honey in that? Yeah. 
I don't know. So maybe I'll try a peanut butter and pickle sandwich at some point. But shout out Joe for doing that. And is it dill pickle or bread and butter? I'm still, I have still. Yeah, I think you have to do dill because then you have the more aggressive taste. With bread and butter, the sweetness would kind of just go with the peanut butter. But that's that's what I feel like makes more sense is if it's bread. I don't like bread and butter pickles. So let that be known. But like jelly is sweet. Jelly goes with peanut butter. Why would a bread and butter pickle not go with peanut butter better than a dill? I don't know. Next time we get together, we will have this a is peanut butter and pickle tasting sandwich. challenge. <laughs> challenge. See what we best. Blind tasting. Oh, <laughs> you like bread and butter peanuts. Uh, <laughs> bread and butter pickles. Pickle. Bread and butter peanuts. <laughs> you like bread and butter peanuts. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I posted that on our Instagram. If you wanted to see that, I actually did like a reaction video of me eating it, but then <gasps> it, it wasn't anything. I was just like, you had no reaction. Like, hmm, okay, that's food. <laughs> I, I have this weird thing. So I don't think it's a weird thing. I don't like watching people eat because I, I just think it's gross. Like, you know, when they do like those shows on TLC and stuff like that, and they zoom in on your mouth and the person is eating. I just don't like that. So to put that out on the internet seemed like a weird thing for me to All do. Right. Especially right. if like if it was some shocking thing where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up or like, like maybe that'd be worth it. But really it was just me eating going, okay, that's food. Um, didn't seem worth it to put out there. But if you wanted to see uh, the pictures and other things, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Adult Book Club 21. It is all one word, Adult Book Club 21. And you can find us there. Now, before we get to the book, I'm bringing back an old segment. And this is a, or not a segment, it's a topic, but th- this is one we got rid of, the shout out. And the reason we got rid of it was we ran out of shout outs. But my friends, I want to give a special shout out to Mr. Sullivan. So Sully, I was talking to him this week and he told me that his dad had listened to our podcast yeah. on the book. Ow upgrade because he had read it get out and he said that uh if he remembers nothing else sean should remember to tell us that he agrees with us and he liked his other two books better his other two previous books better and that upgrade was a letdown for him as well so i don't know if he's listening to other episodes or not but i know sully will at least hear this so shout out to your dad shout out to mr sullivan for uh listening to upgrade and agreeing with us i mean that's all it takes just agree with us and we'll love you yeah forever. we'll shout you out <laughs> i also disagree with us we'll probably shout you out then too. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair as well so moving into the book which was brought to us by sully and now we're full circle uh once again it is the power of one by bryce courtney the biggest thing that shocked me about this uh, after I read it and I was getting the rundown ready, this was his debut novel. In fucking sane. I had no idea either. Because we talk about that or I feel like we ran into a lot more when we first started this podcast where we'd be like, you can tell this is a debut It feels novel. like a debut it novel. Like, like we really know novel. what we're talking about. <laughs> Not an author. But with this, I would have never guessed. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is just a testament to the writing or, you know, maybe the love and whatever went into this book. So... It was his debut novel. It was originally published in 1989. Um, It was turned into a movie in 1992, which Corday helped write the screenplay and starred Stephen Dorff of the Blade Blade franchise. He was the 18-year-old PK and Morgan Freeman of the Morgan Freeman franchise. (laughs) And I will say, Sully asked us what we thought of this book. And I sent him your email that you sent us. Or sent oh, us, sent with me. my fat fingers. <laughs> and uh, he goes, tell her that the movie fucking sucked. So- Dude, I watched a preview for it. And I was like, I got so excited when I read your recap that I, or like the rundown for this episode, that I stopped reading it, went to IMDb, found out about this movie. and was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I want to watch it. And then I watched a preview and was like, fuck no. 
I didn't even get that far because I, I didn't want to confuse it with the book because I feel like, and we'll get into this, there's so much in this book that so we much. can't talk about that will not cover it all. And I'm sorry, but I didn't want to add more confusion by watching the movie, but I fully yeah. intended on watching the movie afterwards. And now I fully intend not to. Nope. No, it, I no. I was like really excited. I did the same thing. I was like, I can't watch it before the podcast because then I'll get it confused. I had, I don't think you could get it confused, to be honest. I think I would just be so mad about how the movie went that I wouldn't. And I hate when that happens. I hate when the the writer is involved in the screenplay and then that happens where it's like, no, it wouldn't make sense. We have to change this whole thing. And it's like, your story was already good because like, this is a terrible, not the same caliber, but Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. I really like that book. And the movie was written by the guy who wrote the book and the movie was not like the book and it was fucking terrible. And I hate when they do that. It's like, dude, you you already had something good. Why are you messing with it? Why are you messing with it? I think the the one flip side of that coin would be Station Eleven. Because like there was so many and and granted that was a show, not a movie. You have a different like um, platform, I guess, to, to work with. But like that was a very different experience which i feel like you're saying normally the movie i'm like yeah and i feel like that is the long form like it's the same thing whenever you see a stephen king movie like to take a king book and shorten it into two or three hours it just doesn't work it has to be it has to be a different way of telling that story but we have diverged this might be the the podcast of divergence because we've been doing it all day oh my god it took us like an hour and a half to start recording it's true so before we go any detail (laughs) on that route uh Tasha why don't you go ahead and read us the the cover and we'll get started on the power of one All right. In 1939, as Hitler cast his enormous, cruel shadow across the world, hatred of a similar kind took root in South Africa, where the seeds of apartheid were newly sown. There, a boy called P.K. was born. He spoke the wrong language, English, the language spoken by those who had sent the Afrikaners to the world's first concentration camps during the Boer War. He was suckled by a woman of the wrong color, black, the color of fear and disdain. His childhood was marked by humiliation and abandonment, yet he vowed to survive. He would become welterweight champion of the world. He would dream heroic dreams. But his dreams were nothing compared to what awaited him, for he embarked on an epic journey through a land of tribal superstition and modern prejudice, where he would learn the power of words, the power to transform lives, and the mystical power that would sustain him even when it appeared the villainy would rule the world, the power of one. Nice. So the first question Normally we deal with the character. I think we'll be dealing with the character throughout all of these questions. So I wanted to get your initial thoughts as you started reading this book. As we met PK in his boarding school, uh, before he even had the name PK, where he was being bullied by the judge and jury, and then his return home during the holidays, and all of that that encompassed kind of in the first probably 30 or 40 pages. I want to get what your feeling was as you were getting into this. About, sorry, say that again? So, kind of about the story as we got into it and okay. as we're discovering PK, what were you feeling about him towards him and about the story as we're Just starting? like general. Yeah. Okay, I thought he was so fresh, <laughs> super fresh little kiddo that like I very much appreciated the way that it was written like through his eyes. There are some things about the way that it was written that like, very much clued you into him being a small child what was he six he was five five okay right and then he turned okay yeah 
So like, that's a really young kid to be essentially on his own in this environment that he's like totally unfamiliar with. And he's also just casually a genius. And I just, there was some phrase that he used about when he would get sad, it was like the loneliness birds or the loneliness. Yeah. Am I? They were laying their eggs inside of him. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was like such a compelling visual because like this kid who is feeling these feelings doesn't know how to express them comes up with whatever a close approximation I just like I just had a lot of feelings for PK like he he was kind of the ultimate protagonist for a story somebody who is like figuring himself out and figuring life out and figuring out like how other people interact with him how he needs to like survive I just big fucking love for PK (laughs) yeah and we discussed this a couple episodes ago with the Paragon Hotel and how it was difficult to connect with nobody because Mm. she didn't let us into that and it was it seemed like that was kind of part of the the idea behind the book this was the exact opposite where in the first couple pages you learn about PK and you just want to protect him and you just see this precious little boy who's five who speaks the wrong language who is seen as um you know the English who are hated here because of all that they've done in South Africa and he's in this boarding school because his mother is in an asylum basically to help with her mental illness and his grandfather can't take care of him so they decide to send him to boarding school early if everything's not bad enough where you're singled out for being English and the wrong color, now you're two years younger and you're getting bullied. And, and then beyond that, I mean, the cruelty of children that is really shown through the judge and the jury is what he calls the other kids that stand around him where he is going literally pissed on. Yeah. Pissed on. And for the first, you know, 40, 50 pages of this book where he's known as piss cop, which means piss head. Because that's how, that's the name that they use for him. And that's how he even introduces himself to other people. That's how he sees himself because that's how he is as a child. I mean, it just, it did everything that other books we've complained about haven't done. Where you're immediately attached to him in the first couple of pages. And you're like, no matter what happens, like I'm ride or die with this kid. Oh my God. I want to protect him. Yes. Yes. He, he is precious. He is like, I wanted this kid to succeed so badly this book like Sully did not lie when he said it would be an emotional like I cried a lot (laughs) a lot a lot but it was definitely like the overarching like strain was wanting PK to succeed and that was an interesting thing too and we saw it even from the five-year-old version where Courtney how well he wrote PK wrote him for his age and like even obviously in the 30s it's it's it, one of the interesting things I look at overall in our lives is how slower we now mature or grow oh up God. because we aren't forced to. But in PK's five, PK's five was a lot different than today's five. Oh, hell yeah. Courtney still wrote it so that you saw him grow. And that he, you like understand that he is actually five years old. Like there's some things that he like seems really advanced in, but then others that he's like very clearly five years old. <laughs> and it was incredibly uh, captivating because oh and believable where you're like, yes, this makes sense. And as a boy, uh, his fascination with this hatless snake 
Oh my God. <laughs> he brought it up so much, but and he's like I, so confused about how like his is different than everyone else's. Oh my God. It, so it, fresh. And it makes sense that that would be something that he was concerned about because and he doesn't getting, understand exactly because he's getting picked on it. And of course his grandfather, I mean, he would never bring it up to his grandfather, but he would never also his grandfather never think to talk to him about that. You know, it's just, no. that is what it is. But it was like his biggest concern for the, the five-year-old version. I mean, really it's such all a little things. boy thing. Yeah. yeah. It was hilarious as, uh-huh. as he's getting to, to grow up with that and, and thinking he's broken or something because of, because of circumcision of all things. So. Oh my God. I don't think I've ever, that's not true. I just think like for such a dynamic character to like be able to be with them throughout such transformative like that's we were with him in this book from what five to like 20 ish uh yeah five to 18 19 yeah. 18 19 okay so like from childhood to essentially young adult well basically adulthood in that time period yeah. like you were saying and that's like that's freaking huge especially because you're you're just so invested in his growth yeah. and his transformation from which like it's not like character growth with like a Jamie Lannister kind of thing where they start out one way and they end up a totally different way. Well, it's no, like, they ended up the same way, but oh fuck off. <laughs> I'm sure in the books it was better. I stopped reading, but in any case, fuck you, being <laughs> But you see my point, like that that it wasn't like a, a point A to point like Z. It was very much like you get to you just gosh the investment like yeah and 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 Bryce I am so excited I literally like went on to Goodreads and I was like want to read want to read want to read want to read <laughs> everything of his I'm so pumped did you know that there's a second book I did see that I didn't know that getting into it and that was actually one Me of my concerns as we were getting towards the end I was like wait how is this gonna end like I I only have like 10 pages left what's going on yeah I was like what's gonna happen to PK here what's going on he's not an adult adult yet I know I am very excited to hear that there's a second book and I will a hundred thousand percent be reading it but I also like knowing what you told me before about how like in Australia he's sort of like the Harlan Cohen of bookstores where like he's he's everywhere yeah. and I can understand that I mean like the if this was his debut novel in the 89 80 whatever you said yeah. 89 nice body of work that I'm gonna be consuming <laughs> um I absolutely loved his style of writing it was just like ugh. It was captivating. And, so captivating. And the, the thing that gets me is it's, again, I always want to talk about myself, deal with it. But like, I remember thinking that when I thought I was going to have kids, I'd be like, I will be okay because I will remember what being a kid is like. Oh, I have nieces and nephews now that I'm like, I don't understand what they're going through. Why are <laughs> they acting like that? <laughs> Why are they being that way? I don't understand. I don't remember being a kid at all. And that's another thing for, for Courtney where I'm like, to 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 get so right or at least that voice yes to get that voice so correct and then through those formative years and yes he is dealing with a genius child which may or may not be believable but uh it did come through so much with pk on these situations where you're like yes that makes sense that it's again going back to the paragon hotel where we did not believe her nobodies were that was a dnd character that seemed to keep making the wrong choices this seemed like a well thought out character that he knew and he made the right choices going on where you were never like PK wouldn't do that. that oh, same. That's for PK. Yes. 
I also would like to, if we're going to keep the D&D reference going, would also like to say that, yes, some really terrible things happened to BK, but he was, like, rolling that 20s, like, <laughs> and it was just, like, really satisfying because, like, still, still bad things were happening, and it wasn't like he was going through, you know, it didn't, it wasn't like he coasted. He didn't have an easy time of it, but he still was, like, so freaking amazing <laughs> yeah he was faced with adversities a lot throughout a this lot we'll get to that as we move forward and yeah it was it was him navigating that and also he had help which we'll get into as well with the different people who kind of stepped up to help him out so the other big part of this book was the spiritual side and the idea of of africa like it was the fact that it says the classic novel of south africa on the title and i was kind of like that seems like a lot and then you're reading it and you're like okay i can see where that's coming through having none, no experience with South Africa. But you, you, I felt like you could see that coming through the writing. And also um, Bryce Courtney, that is where he is from originally. Um, well, and you could tell that like the the love and the respect for just the land, the people. It was people. definitely there, which made it better to read. It made you want to read more because it felt like you were experiencing that through his eyes for yes. sure. Uh, so our introduction to the spiritual side of the book also comes early on through PK's meeting with in Kosi in Kosakazi to catch nice. bedwetting. I practiced that so many times. Um, I was like saying it, saying it, saying it, same way. <laughs> uh, so his meeting with him to cure his bedwetting. How did this help set up the story for you? Um, and kind of that understanding of the bigger, the spiritual side of it. I really loved that because I felt like it was, it was a neat little introduction to sort of, like you said, the spiritual side and just sort of like that aspect of South Africa and the culture of the people and how a little bit of PK and how I don't want to call it accepting but that does seem right just given like the environs that he was in like you know he mentions at one point that his grandpa had been seen by this um, spiritual leader guy to cure him of something I don't remember what it was but the fact that like his family wasn't a bunch of racist fucks was really helpful. <laughs> well, I think it was it was a big moment when his grandfather shook in Kosi's hand or something. When they when they greeted, he yeah, he, he didn't look down upon him. Yes, well, he because had, he had been there before helping his grandpa, right? Well, I don't remember that exactly. So you may be onto something that I just forgot. But I I know it was the nanny's idea. It was his nanny's yes. idea to bring him um, well, to help cure this. So he might have come before to help the grandpa too. I get. I it. just found it. I literally turned. There to it is. So he admired Inkosi, Inkosi, Inkosi Kazi, who had once cured him of his gallstones. And he like told PK, or he told PK about like the experience that he had. And he was sort of like, you know, I, I mean, it's like a little, little racist still. If you ask me, the old monkey is the best damn doctor in the low belt. Like little bit on the racist side but also like he like you said he's showing actual respect when he gets there yes and compared that is still racist but yes. compared to the language that the others were using or how yes. they wouldn't have accepted him at all and how we see his mother later on when she comes mm -hmm. to the story how she is like you're gonna either go to my side you're gonna come with god or you're gonna fuck right off so yeah. his grandfather was kind of the in between that where yes. he still had that like a little bit of the old boy in him, which I think a lot of our grandparents do. Yep. Uh, if we're being honest. Generational thing. Generational thing. But also he could respect that this is somebody who could help you and respect and, the power that he had. And like, there's there's something to be said, I feel like for the fact that 
that somebody who you look down on could still help you, but you're not going to treat them with respect. Like you yes. could, you could still get something out of the exchange without giving them that handshake that they deserve or whatever. And so I, I feel like for, for PK to see that happen and to understand that, especially because of how much he loved Nanny and how this was her idea. And like all the other uh, people that were working on the farm were so, oh, what's the word? Obsequious to Nkosi Kazi. Like that, I think, painted the, the proper picture for PK. And, and with the grandpa, he he's better at smoking his pipe than he is at talking and to yeah. the whole sentence it usually comes out in 10 minutes of tamping and puffing mm-hmm. and blowing blue smoke and all this stuff but he talks about he, he doesn't talk about but he does talk about his experience with the war that brought him here and he has that respect for the african that a lot of his uh other englishmen do not so right. i think that was important too to show that there are the different levels of colonizer i guess is the the easiest the way proper to term yeah. yeah uh when it comes to the native people because like the difference between his grandfather his mother and pk they kind of all had their own parts of it where his mother was way to one side his grandfather yes. was kind of middle ground and then pk was the other side towards the people. yes and i also think like just the interaction that pk had with inkosi inkosi kazi like it was so cute just like the the way that he cured him and the way that he I mean like what a dude to be like so good with a little kid I mean granted like I don't know if it was like actually a spiritual thing or not but like what a good psychological tool he just gave this kid and then the chicken thing and like how he's like here this is a thing we share this is like this is just a you and me thing and I just I man it was so good it was like here is this tool to empower this young child I just like so much yeah it was for me that was the introduction they called it the path of the warrior um yes had to prevail against the three waterfalls do the 10 stepping stones and then cross the river in order to get over this bedwetting but it was something that pk came back to multiple times he remembered the path of the warrior and remembered yeah. that, uh, this was what he had to do to overcome obstacles in his life and, and it helped him through other things and Kosi even told him like whenever you're on that other bank i am there with yeah. you like if you ever yeah. need me, i am there this with is you. our space this is our this space is for us and for that for me that was really kind of opening that spiritual side of the book where it was the spirit of Africa and it was kind of his link. Like he talks about how Nanny told the story of his bedwetting and told the story of what he went through with the judge and the jury and the bullying and the urinating on him and the beatings and all those things that he experienced and how incredible it was for a woman to be such a storyteller and how powerful that was for Nanny as well. But it was kind of, for me, that was PK seeing the power of the people, seeing the power of the storytelling. And that was another grounding effect for him with Africa. And he talked about how throughout his life, he was seen kind of different because he spoke so many different languages uh, because he, all these different African tribes, the Zulu and worked on the farm. they would talk different things. And then there's kind of this combined language, the Afrikaner. And he spoke that too, but he also spoke English. And he, he was just seen as this, kind of person of the people because he a took uniting. the time to oh, yeah. learn these things but for him it wasn't anything because that was his nanny and that was his nanny's people and that was the people that, that was just his environment him. exactly yeah. so he wanted to be immersed in that and whereas other people would turn their back on that um or think they were better than that he he 
recognized that and, and became one with the people and the spirit of Africa. And I think this was just really the groundwork to our introduction to that and, and kind of a focal point being like, okay, this is going to be important. Like this is an important tie for him to have moving forward for him to come back on. So I really, like, I think this happens in the first 20 pages and it's just like, okay, this is a big moment. You can tell we're getting right into this kid's life. Yeah. I've already told like so many people about this book. Well done, Sully. The best $5 I've ever spent in North Carolina. So getting back to the chicken ring and basically what Nkosi shows him is that if you hold the chicken a certain way, draw a line, draw a circle in the dirt, and then have the chicken go around the circle as well as you're holding it in his hand, then you put it down, the chicken will stay there. So he shows PK how to do this trick. And then these are these uh, chickens that are meant for Nkosi and he lets PK keep one. And that chicken is named Grandpa Chook. So this is another one from Sully. Sully said, make sure you shout out Grandpa Chook. So shout out Grandpa Chook. And he becomes his best friend. It is the fucking cutest. So like, I he, cannot even. When he goes back to boarding school, he smuggles Grandpa Chook in. He brings him out to a field that is overgrown and creates a little house for him. Uh, he is quickly discovered. But Grandma Chook is the best at eating um, uh, roaches, roaches, cockroaches in the kitchen. So he earns his keep. And he talks about how incredible he is at surviving. Like this chicken. And it's it's one of those things, again, as you're a child, you could absolutely see this. If you're an adult, you would just think he was a chicken. But if you're a child, no, he knows me. Like he got to the point where as soon as PK would draw the circle, he would just get in and sit down in it. And he was like, he's a smart chicken. He also would, like, know when PK was, like, needing a friend. And, like, oh, my God. Like, I, this little rooster, bro, is, like, the best. I pictured him, like, I pictured him as the rooster uh, from... From Moana? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, because he is, he's, like, a little bit bedraggled and kind of, like, not all there. But he is perfect for PK. So I pictured him looking like, hey, hey which is the chicken from Moana, but not being as dumb. Hey, hey's a yes. dumb, dumb. Yes. Grandpa Chook is freaking clever. He is like the chicken version of PK. Fair. But again, in the, it's just another thing where it's like, he learned the spirituality of Africa from Nkosi and Kosakazi. He learns his chameleon from mm. his time of being at the boarding school. He learns survival from Grandpa Chook. Like all these things all these people or animals have an incredible impression on this child that with this overlapping story of the power of one it is all these lessons that build that power of one within him coalesce into the power of one you do with your big fucking five point words boom but it's it's impressive to think and to see that a chicken could be part of that and grandpa chook does meet a very sad end Oh my God, I cried. As he is killed by basically the the judge and the jury who are basically Nazis at the school. But he does get his. He does. Even though he dies a terrible death, he fucking gets it. And I love that. He does. He he goes out on on his own terms in a way. Uh, He makes his mark, I guess. He makes his mark. Can I just say, can I just say? Yeah, go ahead. Technically spoilers? No. So he like during the whole meeting his end thing he shits in the judge's mouth and it's so satisfying and it's incredible because this is another thing with the whole 
uh, reach of Hitler in 1939 as he, as PK is in boarding school and he doesn't understand anything, but he's going mm-hmm. to school with a bunch of Boers, uh, which are like the farmers and the Africans that were a lot the of white Africans. Africans should be mentioned, but they see themselves as more Africa than the English then, who had come yes. uh, and, and colonized on top of them. So they had the Boer war. And then after that, they are now, there's still some bad feelings there towards the English. So as Hitler is coming to power in Europe, the Boers are siding with Hitler on a lot of cases saying like, okay, this will be the, the English are our enemies. This is how we get rid of the English. So PK is seen as the enemy, but he is the only enemy. So he, they take him for beatings and they make him do things and say things every week. The judge and the jury do, because these are 14, 15 year old kids, I believe. And a five-year-old's doing your math homework, you douche treating this five and six-year-old uh, like a piece of shit because they're they're playing their war games and and interrogation and and all that but they were they were just basically call them a did they call him a prisoner of war prisoner yeah. of war yeah they were using excuses to beat him basically right. so in that last moment in the hour before they were supposed to be free from this boarding school forever uh the beatings got extra harsh and they wanted him to eat shit literally uh pk and because of that grandpa chook took a shit and then had a really sad death and then died a sad death so moving on from that that really sad death that really sad death we see another one soon r.i.p we are it was interesting because again going back to grandpa took he spent a lot more time with but in kosi and kosakazi he spent a day with day and a half tops we see another one of those situations on his trip to barberton where PK meets Hopi Gronwald, uh, a boxer who in 24 hours basically changes his life. So what ends up happening is a plague goes through and kills all of his grandfather's chickens. They can't hold the farm anymore. So they sell the farm and they move to another town, which is two days away by train called Barberton. When PK gets out of boarding school that year, he is sent there. And on this two-day train trip, uh, there's a layover of like eight hours. And on the train, he meets Hopi, or Hoppy. Hoppy uh, is how I've been Hoppy. saying it. Yeah. He meets Hoppy, who is a boxer and kind of takes him under her wing, seeing him as like a little brother kind of situation. So I was wondering, what did you make of Hoppy and his interactions with PK and what that had the effect on the rest of his life? Oh my God. So much love for Hoppy. First of all, just because like, what a confident dude. And also like, what a sort of like the grandfather, not super racist, like not somebody who's who's going to be teaching subtly, like the hidden curriculum style, this young, impressionable kid, things that are pretty terrible. He's like named his boxing name is like Joe Lewis. Kid Lewis. Kid Lewis. Yeah. Which is after what, an American, an African-American dude? Am I right about that? I don't know anything about boxing. This is my boxing knowledge showing. I believe Joe Joe Lewis was one of the heavyweights. Um, I don't okay. know if that's what he was named after, but I know they talked about Joe Lewis coming to Africa at one point. So that could be it. Well, and I think that at one point, somebody calls Hoppy out for like being a black lover because he took the name of like Kid Lewis is like a black boxer or like lewis is a black boxer so his name even though he's white is like they were looking down on him because he was like effectively respecting a black guy in any case hoppy was just like what a really amazing role model 
for a kid. I also just, this was something about Bryce Courtney's like writing style that I really appreciated is he would kind of give you little foreshadowy tidbits where he'd be like, PK is meeting Hoppy for the first time. And he says to the reader, like, this would inform the rest of my life. Like yeah. he tells you outright how important this this character is. And like, then it's just obviously very clear, but it's one of those things where the style of the writing was almost like, I feel like Paragon Hotel wanted to be, where it's like writing a history or like telling somebody a story. So we're we're seeing it in the moment, but we're also seeing it in the moment, having somebody recap it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was really helpful reading it to be like, okay, this is, this is quite critical. And it was also just like, kind of a satisfying, like spoiler alert, <laughs> which I'm a horror for. So I, I knew Hoppy was going to be key. And I loved Hoppy. I loved how he treated PK, he came up with the name PK because when he tells, when PK tells him that his name is Piscop, he just like shortens it to PK. It was before that. No way. Yes. It was the, um, it was the guy who he got his tackies from in the town. <gasps> You're right. Pen because he told his name. Right. And I, I like, cause it just happens and he just calls him PK. And yeah. then he says, that is the, that is a good name. You should go with that one instead. And like, I was like, okay, where did PK come from? No, and it's nothing. Totally he, right. he legitimately was just like, oh, you should go by PK. So yeah, sorry. Solid point. No, that's fair. That's fair. But in any case, my appreciation for Hoppy definitely was that he was just so accepting of this young kid and treated him like he wasn't just a young kid. You know, he wasn't trying to like protect him or be like, go sit over there and read a book. He was like, we're involved. We're going to go eat this meal. And like, just loved it. Loved it. Taught yeah. him all about boxing. Not all about boxing, but like was really sharing his excitement for boxing. And it was just really cute. Yeah, for me, my first note on on Hoppy was that it was the first time someone outside of the family or nanny or a chicken had mm -hmm. his friend. Like yeah. he took PK under his wing and PK knew he was going to look out for him right yeah. off the bat. Like he did a couple things on the train to prove that he was trustworthy mm -hmm. and that he was going to look out for him. And then when they got to the layover, he was like, oh, like they, they had talked about boxing and PK knew nothing about it. He's like, oh, you got time. You're going to come to my fight. You know, it's going to be great. Blah, 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 and all this stuff. And like even in their first meeting where he tries to get on this train with his tackies and the tackies are like 17 sizes Way too big for his little feet shoes. and he falls over and he picks him up he's like that's fine little brother like we'll take care of you all this stuff so like hoppy was incredible and i can see he just had that and it's a charisma that i think a lot of the great boxers or fighters have mm -hmm. to have that's how they sell their fights they sell themselves but mm -hmm. he was giving that to pk and he was using that for pk's benefit as we saw later on as they go and get him a proper size tacky in the story and he uses his kind of renown which you see the people around hoppy give him that respect not only on the railway station but in that shop with the shoes and then uh, pk gets swept up into that where to the point where a lot of people we learned later on thought he was Hoppy's child. Like oh, that's yeah. how important it seemed to Hoppy about PK's well-being. I will say in regard to that tacky shop, his like Indian racism was painful. Yes. 
But again, like sign of the times, this whole situation, like there was some stuff that like, and that was a little surprising to me just from Hoppy, like and what we know about him before. I was a little like, whoa. But I think it also, but I think it also makes him believable. Human. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, but yeah, it's like, and, and getting back to kind of the point that I definitely made a lot against the Paragon Hotel with how the language really turned me off on it. There were some moments of heavy racism in this book sprinkled in. They did use the N-word like once or twice. Yeah. But that's it. It, it wasn't the same. It wasn't thrown in your face. It was only used, you know, there was other, like you said, the grandfather, oh, that monkey can do stuff. There was those yeah. racial terms used, but it wasn't as aggressive i guess i would say so i did i'm not going to say i appreciated it but <laughs> i did appreciate the story going on without using it as much as it definitely could have if you think of south africa in the 1940s 50s as we're living this life through pk i'm sure it definitely could have been written a lot worse so it was there but it wasn't as thrown down your throat as everything else like you could you're not going to forget the setting you're in but you could uh move past those kind of moments as they came up for sure because it wasn't leaned on it wasn't leaned on to paint the picture and I think that's the important part and I think too that like part of what painted the picture was not necessarily words people's actions definitely still painted a very like racist whole picture so it made it like there were still some there were some rough parts to read but it wasn't like shoving it down your throat that the other one felt like that said I assumed 1930s, 40s-ish South Africa would be very racist. I did not necessarily know about Portland. It's true. Yeah, it is a little bit more. Going into it. You know what you're going into for sure. That's the other side of it. So also during this time, Hoppy tells him basically over and over again that he's going to be the welterweight champion of the world, meaning PK. And that becomes his motto. That along with first with the head, then with the heart become oh. striving for us through his life and again at this point he's seven yeah. six or seven i think he's six still yeah so it's a profound moment for me because he is the day before grandpa Chuk dies he's mourning that loss and then he meets hoppy the next day and hoppy kind of gives him a direction and i think for all young people no matter what their age if they have a direction suddenly it gives them some it gives them purpose and that mm-hmm. is what a lot of us are looking for and he takes that it comes up later on like i think when he gets to his when he eventually gets to barberton he's like still down in the dumps and then we get on with his life but eventually that whole welterweight championship uh champion comes into his mind more and more and that becomes his driving force throughout the rest of his life to to achieve what hoppy saw in him and also to achieve what he saw hoppy achieve in the boxing ring that night he knows that that is what he wants to chase that kind of glory that small can be big i think all of that too like is informed by his experience with the judge and grandpa chuk's death and stuff where it's like you like rooting for the underdog is sort of like a human nature for some people kind of thing and having for him getting to watch hoppy succeed in this fight where he looked like he was gonna get smashed just because of this strict like this guy looks huge and hoppy was not big and to have the sort of mechanics of it went out over just like the visual quick visual of oh that guy's bigger so he must win 
And that guy, like Hoppy was fighting out of his weight class. The guy was a heavyweight. He was like 50 pounds or something crazy. Right. Like it was definitely, everyone thought that, you know, that uh, Jackhammer Schmidt should win. It was only because of Hoppy first with the head, then with the heart that he is able to beat him. And even in the fight, he's allowed to win by disqualification. And Hoppy says, no, I'm not going to win that way. We're going to keep the fight going, uh, even though he's taking a punishment just so he can win the way he feels is correctly like it's it's so incredible and like i also think that's a sign of the times where today we don't have as many moments where we're traveling by train or (laughs) uh, where we come across those people in our lives but for somebody to have such an impact on a child in 24 hours it's really incredible but also again i I believed it like that's the thing oh my gosh writing and the storytelling every time he brought up first with the head then with the heart Every time he brought up Hoppy, every time he said he wanted to be welterweight champion of the world, I went back to that night and I believed it. And that, like, I think it's interesting, too, because there's at some point later on where he, I don't remember the specifics, but he, like, meets some guy who was also at that fight. It's the it's the captain of the prison. Smith. Right. Oh, Smith. Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, right. So, Jack Hammer Smith. Right. So, like, just the the fact that such a what could be considered a small drop in the bucket in terms of your life and experiences in your life can have such a meaningful effect is like so poignant because it's really true, especially like, and I guess like you could call it his informative years mainly because he was like having to be more mature than he normally would be or whatever. He's doing all this stuff on his own. Like that's, that's very impactful and very informative. And I think it's just a testament to the writing that it seemed so natural, so believable. And it was just really satisfying. Yeah. And for all he has done and for as mature as we say he is, this is his first adventure, really, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. First time on his own. He's never really been on a, on his own like this. Like So these people looking after him, obviously he's going to lean on them, but they help him in other ways too. I didn't have this in the rundown, but I do want to touch on Hetty. She is this gregarious woman who is very large and is like the cook for the railway group. And she ends up when PK wakes up the next day in the train because he fell asleep after the long boxing night. He finds that Hetty is in his Compartment. compartment with him. And then they have a very long situation where Hetty is so big, she cannot get off the floor in order to get back on her feet because she's that big. And they go through this entire day of his travel with her to the point where at the end of it, she dies of a presumed heart attack right in front of him. I was just wondering, at that point, I'll say for me, just to lead a question with my answer, I was thinking about Grandpa Chook. I was thinking about how Hoppy, Hoppy was had gotten his papers. He was being called to war. And then we have Hetty dying in front of him all these people that were caring for him and t- looking after him and taking care of him were immediately disappearing and I, to me i was thinking like is this is that the story is he just constantly overcoming loss um and and trying to fight these hardships on his own or like are these people who show up going to disappear quickly to the point where when we get to the next question with doc i was immediately like i expected don't get attached to him yep uh, I was wondering if you had a similar feeling with that or like what you thought of the whole heady situation as, as Oh, that. I sure yeah. did. When we met Doc, I was worried because yeah. everybody yeah. else had been so fleeting. But I do think that, you know, Hetty, for what his experience 
with her was was a, obviously a little different than Grandpa Chuck and with Hoppy. Like this was somebody I think he he understood was sort of I don't want to call protector, but somebody that like was invested in his safety and whatever, but also was going through some shit. She had her own demons. Oh, lots. And like that, that whole bit, we were talking about this before, was like really long, (laughs) really long and really hard for me to properly visualize. I don't know if it's because I'm not quite sure how, what train compartments look like or quite how big Hetty was. But like, I think that that was really interesting just from a, him being able to at a young age witness somebody like really struggling and I think that he as a character was just super interesting and impressive in terms of his ability to like I think at one point he says he'd like learned how to basically read between the lines when people talked he was like watching nonverbal communication and like really he was he's such an intuitive person to be able to really get as much out of an interaction as possible. So I think like maybe more so than your average six-year-old, he was kind of understanding what was going on with Hetty better than maybe even an adult would. I don't know. It was, I don't know what to, how to phrase it, but he having to watch her go through that, suffer through that. And then, I don't know, it, it felt like a loss. Don't get me wrong, but not in the way that Grandpa Chook was obviously yeah there's much more of connection with grandpa chuck obviously but like for me i was wondering and as i was writing this up i didn't even include her in the rundown but i feel like she needs to be mentioned i just wondering in this conversation like what did that what did that bring to the table all these moments build up into the power of one build up into pk's life as he moves forward i was wondering if there was anything that stood out to you from that that really that you could think of that that came into his life because we hear her story about uh her husband that she ended up losing who was also a boxer like maybe about defeat or something like that how he would just take the beatings and then because of that he would then shit out of her as well no obviously not a great guy but no i just didn't I didn't know what else Hetty had for a mark on his life other than being that chaperone that kind of took him the last bit of the way when Hoppy could not continue the journey to Barberton. So for me, Hetty was an example of somebody who doesn't respect themselves. And I don't know if that's correct. I don't know if that's the message that was getting across, but like she was still, I mean, like you said, she had the role kind of for him of a protector but I think that he could see reading between the lines as he does and just being empathetic and whatever else that she didn't. I mean, even her story about her husband or ex husband whatever he was, and how she was almost saying that he had every right to beat her up or like that it was it was her. I think that like having she was a good example of not having respect for yourself and and being in this position of not self-love i guess uh, maybe, maybe she was the example of what happens if you're you let go of that dream where like you accept yeah. your circumstances maybe where you're not going after where you're not striving for more yeah because as we touch on pk will have to overcome quite a bit of adversity yeah. so maybe that's the example of like if you stop fighting because she drank and she had Wait. food and she just kind of had 
she had given up after her husband had died because of a boxing match where he died and she carried him out of the ring, but basically he died uh-huh. in the ring. Yeah. Uh, and then she had given up because she had, she didn't think she had anyone else um, or anyone else would care for her. So then she just became this drunk uh, who also, as we saw in the the time with her, relied on food a lot and everything else. So maybe that was what was her purpose to show him like, if, if you succumb to adversity and lose yourself, you know, give up on your dream or something like that, this could be where you go. Well, or maybe not even give up on your dream, but just like not have one. She, she struck me as the type of person that didn't necessarily have an individual, not that she didn't have a personality. She seemed like a big personality, but she didn't have, do you get what I'm trying to say? Like she didn't have a she didn't have a purpose, I think. Anymore. Yeah. I mean, like even she... just like a obviously, like not everyone's gonna be like, oh, I'm the I'm gonna be the welterweight champion of the world. I don't have a purpose if we put it to that degree. But at the same time, like I don't I don't know. I guess I have like goals. I don't know. I'm really Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I didn't mean this to go dark. I just really didn't know what Hetty's purpose was and it like you kind of said before we started we did spend a lot of time in that train compartment with her so it made me just think more like as everything else was going on in this story and I was like okay that makes sense that makes sense that makes sense I was kind of like okay Hetty yeah I, mean, I think well, I missed so- that a little bit so and I I I agree I mean I definitely felt like there were that whole like trying to figure out how to get her out of the compartment felt really long-winded I guess maybe that would be the only, well, there's an, anyway, that kind of thing, the long-windedness is a little bit of like, hmm, debut novel. <laughs> but um, again, not a writer. I don't know. And maybe there was more of a point to like Hetty's being what she was. But to me, it's sort of like a cautionary tale Yeah. of like, this is, this is a direction somebody's life can go. Yeah, I won't be this person. I think we'll leave it at that and see if something comes up later on uh, <laughs> with that. But the last question before we get to the Get Scenario podcast, the question before we get to spoilers. So he gets to Barberton, and that's where he learns that Nanny didn't come with his family. And he is now mourning the loss of Grandpa Chook. Hoppy is coming in out of his life. Petty has just died in front of him. And now Nanny, who his mother was basically non-existent in his childhood and this woman raised him. And, and so- Nanny was like the one thing getting back to Nanny was like what got him through school. Yeah. That was like her love, her caress, yeah. her touch, knowing that she would be sleeping on the floor next to his bed every night. She was going to be there for him. So as he's mourning this loss of Nanny, he runs up into the hills behind his grandpa's uh, land and he is stumbled upon by Doc. Uh, who is also known as Professor Carl von Bolenstein. What did you think of this character as we got to know him and his relationship with PK? He is the fucking best. Absodoodle. 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 I I cannot even with Doc. Like, what an amazing dude. Just his his whole thing. Why he's in Africa... His love of cactuses, cacti. Cacti. Um, And just hit, I just, their friendship, I just can't even. That's all I got. Yeah, Doc for me was was something that like, I think a lot of people strive to be. Where it's a guy who 
or person, a person who mm-hmm. maybe didn't have children of their own, who sees somebody that they can help. You know, I mean, he sees, he comes across PK and he takes that picture of, and he even talks about how people in pictures smile too often, even when they're not feeling like smiling. So to capture a real emotion, to capture real sad moment. PK in that sorrow is more powerful than if he was smiling on that rock. And I also just think the two of them bring out the best in each other. Absolutely agreed. And that is- I think you mean absodoodle. Absodoodle. I've read it as absolutal, so um, uh, she's going to double check me, and I'm sure I'm wrong again. No, I don't think you. It is absolutal. Absolutal. So, uh, for me, he was the mentor that he needed. And again, mm-hmm. we talked about this before. My immediate thought was, Doc's going to die tomorrow because everybody else. Same. Does. So Same. For PK to have somebody now in his life that was going to stay and even to like weave in and out of his mother's like, I need to ask Jesus if it's okay for you to deal with them. And he's like, oh, he's going to teach me piano. But like really piano is just kind of a side gig. And for us, it's it's adventuring in Africa. It's looking for these cactus and, and learning. And, and learning and like teaching him how to be an inquisitive and like oh man, like he's a smart kid to begin with, obviously. But like the fact that Doc's interactions with him and the way that he teaches PK sort of like subtly even is just so, he doesn't ever like talk down to him or do any of that. Like, I'm going to teach you this. It's just like, this is, this is what's happening. You're going to osmosis all this shit. And I just like, their whole relationship was so amazing. Yeah, and I appreciated that not only did he increase his knowledge, but he increased mm-hmm. his love for Africa. Like, as yeah. Doc cared so much about botany and cared so much about this yeah. land, he was rubbing the land. on PK. Again, it was another yeah. situation where PK was becoming more involved in Africa, like you said, by osmosis, where mm-hmm. it's not even necessarily the purpose of it, but on their daily adventures out to find new cacti or to find new fauna, he is experiencing the land as the other mm-hmm. people of Barberton aren't because they're perfectly fine living they're in the They're busy building. doing other things. Exactly. Yeah. But they're out exploring and they're out experiencing. And with Doc, he is teaching him not just, you know, what things are or Latin because he needs to know genus species and all this stuff, but he's also teaching him to be super observant and, and in order to take these notes and he's working on his penmanship and all this other stuff. And he is really taking this child at his most impressionable ages under his wing and, and doing incredible by him where everybody else at this point, his mother doesn't know how remarkable he is. Um, he's moved to Barberton where nobody else knows him. So nobody knows how incredible he is. And he's still carrying his chameleon skin, uh, chameleon skin that he developed in school to hide because just yes, how smart so, he is exactly yes. he was super good at mathematics but he didn't let people know until it helped him with the judge to protect him and even then he didn't let other people know because he was scared of what that would do to him so he is kind of allowed to let down that wall with doc and and doc is treating him like an adult he isn't it's almost there. like doc is like the only person that he can be himself around and i think he's he not having to be that. a chameleon with him yeah, he like he is able to be himself. He is able to show how, what he could do and what he can be. And Doc is also impressed by that as well and like wanting that. So I love that character. Again, my biggest fear was that he was going to be gone too soon. Oh my God, yes. Slight spoilers. He is not gone too soon. 
So with that, we have our get to know your podcaster question. So thinking about Doc and his relationship with PK, I was wondering if you've had people in your life that you've made that kind of connection and unusual friendship with. And by that, I mean, like, it's not somebody that you're in class with. It's not somebody that your parents, you know, your whatever neighborhood person, like somebody that is an unexpected friendship that really meant something to you. The one that comes like forefront to my mind is um, my con mom. My con mom, Angie, she is somebody that I met at a convention, a Farscape convention specifically in 2010. I think that's right. And I mean, I call her my con mom because she has kids that are essentially my age. I think a little bit younger than me. So not certainly not like the age difference between (laughs) between Doc and and PK, but somebody that I, I don't think I would have met in any other scenario i mean when we met she lived in arizona is that right arkansas and we met in california at a convention and i obviously live where i live so like circumstances allowed that our paths crossed she is amazing (laughs) i love her so much she has just such an interesting like perspective and and life experiences to bring to the table it's always interesting I think when you have a friendship that is not somebody that's your age be them younger or older but I feel like obviously the older ones are kind of the more impactful because they have more to teach you know I think that just their their life experiences are more useful and I feel like if it's the other way if it is a younger you're the teacher sure situation like it's a it's a it's not often that it's like a 15 year old blowing your mind with oh my god such life knowledge yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and I think that like our relationship and it's not like I'm her only younger person friend especially like being a a convention goer she has like her the people that she hangs out with are not necessarily of her age group she is a world traveler and we have a lot of similar interests, obviously, with our with Farscape and some other things like Miss Fishers and even Star Trek, um, Strange New World. She's the one that told me to watch that. But Russell, obviously, and Lee and all of our Dragon Con people know her because we hang out with her <laughs> at every Dragon Con. But I think like from an impactful standpoint, I think that that would be those sort of like not odd animal friends that's like what's what's coming to my mind because I really love those but I feel like it's a similar scenario like people that you wouldn't necessarily find congregating are friends and I think if you lived in the same town you may not have been friends but right you met under the the convention because you met because of the similar appreciation or love of something you became friends and that's a completely different scenario than what would be a conventional I think friendship. Oh, absolutely. And I think that like, there are those, honestly, like most friendships that I've made with people at conventions like that are not necessarily conventional, as ironic as that term is, that like, there's people from and this is something that I will argue, till I die is that something like that, that brings people together, you've got I mean, like Farscape fans, in particular, all walks of life, you've got I mean, at that same convention, we were hanging that we that Angie and I met. We were hanging out with this um, other woman who's like 
a lawyer and like, I mean, Angie's like a microbiologist. Like there's just all these people from all these different places (laughs) and specialties that get together because of one thing. And I mean, not that Doc and PK really came together over their love of cacti, but I do think that there was something to be said for, for Doc sort of like sharing his love for that and that becoming something that PK was interested in, like actually interested in, not just like, I'm trying to please this guy, but like that shared love, like you said, is so important for, I mean, I guess any relationship, but it is especially interesting when it's people of like very different generations or very different circumstances or what have you. Yeah, that that would be. To your point, Angie's children, Angie has told us that her children are like, oh, you're going to hang out with your con kids or whatever, you know? And she was like, I didn't realize you had such cool friends, which made me feel pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So shout out to Angie if she's listening. Um, I don't think she does, but whatever. That's fine. So for me, my upbringing was so different than your normal person's that for me, my friend's parents played an incredible role in my life. So I was really lucky that there's a large group of of people out there that treated me kind of as one of their own. Like family. Yeah, exactly. And like, that's where the, that's how I saw Doc and how he treated PK. Like these people would it was more than just ask you how you were whenever they came, whenever you came over, they wanted to know more. They wanted to get in depth. And as you grow older, kind of those conversations grow to the point where there's some friends that I was closer with their parents towards the end of our friendship than I was with my friends. But uh, I just really loved having those conversations with them. And it's something about being treated as an equal, regardless of how smart you actually are when you're 18, 19, 20 where they're kind of giving you those life experiences that they've had and they're giving you a different side of the conversation that you probably didn't think about or like you said the experiences the life experiences and all that stuff so there's been a lot of people in my life that I've been very lucky to to have that kind of relationship with in different levels where it's like the same thing uh, where Doc kind of covered everything for PK for the most part, I would be like, okay, I'm going to talk to X's parents about that or Y's parents about that. I'm not going to trust them for all of one certain thing. So uh, for me, that was the big thing. I would also include Angie in that, but also Eric, our friend from previous work, oh, yes. I would be remiss in not bringing him up. And just because we're-, we're He's bro- also my brother from another mother or <laughs> brother from another father because he's got the same last name as me. True. Uh, but we were, uh, we met through one of his friends, you know, that, who was 20 years older than me. And we struck up a friendship that to this day, like, you know, it's the same thing. We have similar uh, interests, obviously, in football and hockey and drinking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we have our own friendship that came off of that. And it's really interesting to see a guy who kids half my age. Uh, you know, and that's always that's one of my one of my favorite things when people are like, "Oh, he could be your son," right? You know, when people say that about a friend of mine, I kind of take that as a compliment because and I think I should too. Because for me, I have chosen you to not only be my friend, but also you're you're mentoring a little bit that way. So, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I, that's what I love. Like Angie uh, posted something on I don't know Facebook about like you know how it's like friend anniversary or whatever but she said about her con daughter so she's my con mom and I'm her con daughter and it makes me inordinately happy (laughs) exactly and it's like 
and and still not to have to work on those friendships like they're just right. natural it's just a wonderful thing and if you don't have that go experience don't just go find anybody on the street <laughs> it's a great thing to experience that where somebody older as you grow in your life can give you those kind of give you that kind of uh perspective and really help you with problems that they've dealt with before and I, I don't know. I think it's mutual. I hope it is for everyone I've mentioned. <laughs> well, and I think that I think that those kinds of things, those kinds of friendship, yours and and Eric is a little bit different because like you guys see each other more regularly. You you live closer geographically yeah. speaking. But Angie and I obviously like don't see each other all that often. And that's something that I've always appreciated about any friendship that I have, a friendship that you can go a really long time without having talking to the person regularly or seeing them regularly and then still pick up where you left off. I have quite a few friends like that, childhood friends, that it's just like no time has passed and you're still just as friendly and connected as you were before. And I feel like that's, I don't want to say a rarity, but I very much appreciate when it exists. Yeah, it is one of those things I love about Dragon Con where it seems like every year we pick up right where we left off. Yes. You know, and it's like, okay, we have some new interest and new loves, but uh, we're just going to keep rolling. And yes, it's like yesterday was the last time we saw each other. So I do appreciate too, that at Dragon Con, we kind of have like a group. We Absolutely. have our people, um, which is like a con of our people, people, but these are <laughs> our specific people. But these um, ones are ours. There are many people like them, but these ones are ours. Yes. And they did not include Joe in this because Joe is basically our age. So I'm, but we do still love you too, Joe. We do still love you, Joe. And our and Arlo. Absolutely. Oh, that's true. Uh, but I don't have the connection that I have with Angie with Arlo. I love Arlo, but we're not. She's more of a free spirit. Not my con mom. She's my con aunt. <gasps> so on that note, on that long-winded us just talking love to all our friends that none of our listeners know. Or <laughs> no, some of our listeners some know. Some of our listeners know. Uh, we're going to move into spoilers. So get ready because we're definitely going to talk more about Doc and others we haven't oh. met yet. So... This is the pop that we're going into spoilers. If you don't know this book, stay. Definitely oh. stay. You need to know. Because <laughs> this is the part where we're going into spoilers. It's time to learn what the power of one is all about. And you need to know. Boom. You need to know, folks. So. But you also just need to go read the book. <laughs> you do need to go read the book. But also let this push you towards reading the book. So. In 1941, with the war raging in Europe, Doc is arrested for being a German alien without proper paperwork. During the arrest, the soldier starts beating Doc and PK intervenes, getting kicked in the head and knocked unconscious. When he awakes, he learns the soldier lied and the town thinks PK is a hero who stopped Doc from escaping and was beaten by him as he made a run for it. PK corrects the story, and because of this, the commandant of the jail allows him to see Doc whenever he likes in prison, as he sees Doc as an honored guest and not a criminal like the other inmates. While visiting Doc in prison, PK manages to join the prison boxing squad and practices daily for two years before he is allowed to fight. During this time, he and Doc also befriend another inmate named Gil Pete, who is an artist when it comes to coaching boxing and takes PK under his wing. The three also devise a scheme to sneak letters, tobacco, and other contraband into the prison in order to help the prisoners who are mostly Black Africans. Because of this, the collective group of these multiple tribes known as the People begin to call PK Onoshobishobi Ingolosi, or the Tadpole Angel. In 1945, with the war winding down, Doc's release is imminent. 
In exchange for coming back to play music for the inspection after he has been released, the Commandant agrees to let Doc play a concert for all the prisoners with PK directing. Doc writes a song he calls the Concerto for the Great Southland and plays it on piano with the different tribes singing along during the second movement. The powerful night ends on a sour note as after the concert, PK finds Gil Pete murdered. With Doc released, he, the town librarian, Mrs. Boxel, and PK's teacher, Miss Bornstein, focus on rigorous schooling and course load for PK to ensure that he will be able to continue on at a secondary school. During this time, PK continues boxing through the prison, winning multiple under 12 tournaments and continues writing letters and sneaking tobacco into prisoners with the help of Mrs. Boxel's Earl of Sandwich Fund. Thanks to the hard work of his tutors, PK is accepted and given scholarship to the Prince of Wales School. When his clothing list comes in and he can't afford his uniforms, the town rallies around him to supply him with everything he needs. He is sent off and on the train platform meets Maury Levy, a Jewish boy his age who quickly becomes his best friend. Once at school, the two start devising different scams and create a sports book on PK's boxing in order to earn money. They also make plans to revamp the boxing program at the school as it is in last place of all the schools and a laughing stock. It takes them three years, but they do eventually remove the stigma. PK returns home over his holiday breaks and he and Doc return to their life of adventuring around the mountains and looking for cacti. But PK notices that Doc is growing old and not able to do as much as he used to. They do one last two day hike in which they find a crystal cave far from the town, which Doc makes him promise to keep a secret. This is the Crystal Cave of Africa and is just for them. Also around this time, PK has saved enough money so he can take boxing lessons from a real coach, Solly Goldman, with Maury acting as his manager. After fighting with Goldman for a while, they are approached by him saying PK has been challenged to fight a 16-year-old newly professional African boxer in one of their townships. PK meets with Mr. Nguni, a black man who has been to all of his fights. He tells PK that he must fight this young boxer because he has the spirit of a chief in him and the people must see if PK still has the spirit of the people in him now that the boy has become a man. PK accepts the fight knowing he can't let the people down and beats the young boxer named Gideon Mandoma, who turns out to be his old nanny's son. After the fight, PK can't stop crying as the feeling comes to him and he knows Doc has died. He returns home to learn that Doc went out hiking and never returned home. After a week, he is presumed dead. They hold a ceremony for him, and before going back to school, PK goes to the cave outside of the Crystal Cave of Africa and finds a note from Doc confirming that he came back here to die. PK returns to school and applies to be a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford. He makes the final five, but does not earn the scholarship, and even though he passed the entry exams, refuses to take a handout from Maury in order to pay for school. He looks towards Doc's spirit for guidance and sees that he needs to make money quick, so he takes a year off from school and heads to North Rhodesia to work in the copper mines. He spends his time in the mines working as a grizzly man, which is considered the most dangerous job in the mine. It is his job to free up any catches in the rocks and ore as they fall down a 60-foot funnel to loading doors below. This is done with explosives and luck. Eventually, PK's luck fails him, and there is an accident in his shaft which throws him to the bottom of the pit. His friend Rasputin, a large Georgian who doesn't speak much English, almost single-handedly unburies PK, saving his life but dying in the process. After a three-week recovery, PK is set to leave the mines when he runs into his old nemesis, the judge, who had been working in his shaft as a diamond driller all along, unbeknownst to PK. The two end up fighting, and PK is able to defeat the much larger man 
eventually carving a Union Jack and his initials over the swastika tattoo that the judge had got when they were still in boarding school. He releases his hate. He has carried his entire life from the man and leaves the mind behind. If you feel like there's more to the story, there's a second book. Yeah. Oh, uh, my God. When I got to the end, I was seriously like, why is there so little left? There's so much I need to know. I was the same way. I was like, I don't understand what happens to PK. I don't understand what happens to PK. So a character that plays a huge role in PK's story that we didn't get to before spoilers was Gil Pete. So he teaches him a lot about boxing, but also about survival. What did you think of this character and also of their friendship? He, I thought, was also a really expert chameleon as much was uh, possible for a black incarcerated man to be well and he was also um, a little different because they described him as like a yellow african oh that's true because yeah. he was so he was like of mixed Lighter. uh genealogy he was kind of despised by both groups uh, right so he didn't really fit in anywhere exactly i mean he still had like effectively the status of a of a black prisoner um, oh yeah almost worse i would say yeah yeah i do think that he was obviously very clever not only just in boxing in survival essentially and like what he needed to to do again the writing style of courtney sort of explaining to the reader as we were learning about gil Pete, like just how influential he was in the prison with boxing for PK specifically just you you got the impression I mean there was never a moment where I was like this guy is not important right but I think overall it was just impressive how effective he was as a boxing coach and very interesting how even Captain Smith came to recognize just how effective and important he was to the boxing team. He got a little bit more respect out of it. That doesn't really feel like the quite the right term, but you know what I'm saying there. He ended up having his his place and his his moment moments. His I don't know. He was very influential for the whole like black market in the prison and the boxing and just everything. Yeah. My first thought about him was that he was going to turn on them the first chance he had, like as they're talking about how (laughs) PK um, is bringing in the letters from the prisoners families and hiding them in at first doc's piano stool. I, and Gil Pete would eventually retrieve them and distribute them. I was like, he's going to turn on them the first chance he gets. And they were kind of talking about how, good he was at survival and blending in and all this and he would take his beatings but also you know he was good at getting out of things and i was like he is gonna turn on that he is a shady motherfucker he did seem a bit shady but i think i'll give it but i think the turning point was and you see this in other stories too where you stumble upon a prodigy Mm. right and i think gil pete saw what pk could do in the boxing ring and realized that this was somebody that invest in yeah needed his nurturing needed his investment because he knew like he said he had been in jail longer than he had been free like he knew there was no outside world for him and he's the kind of um i think pk called him the kind of recidivist that like won't be able to function outside right he has his place here and and he's got a good kind of uh place scooped out for him 
But if he went back in the real world, he would find that he was at below bottom at that point. So yeah, he's got his kind of level here and he knows how to survive in here and he knows his place. And he's got a great place of power being, like you said, the kind of key to the black market where he's making 30% on everything he smuggles in or helps smuggles in. But I think as the boxing came more into play and he realized what there was in PK and again, being able to mold this young clay where I think he's... By this point, I think he's nine when he goes in or eight. Yeah, I think they wouldn't there. let him. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't let him box. actually box until he was 10 or. I want to say 10. Yeah, okay. nine or 10. So so Gil Peak gets to work with him and see that. And he gets the eight punch combo in there. And he gets his own little celebratory moments in the corner as he sees PK kind of begin to, to grow and succeed at boxing. So. I thought he was a really interesting character because he was somebody that was so hated by almost everybody. But then we saw the other side of him. And, and as you're initially, as I was initially thought that he was this tricky guy, slippery guy that you wouldn't trust. He became the most trusted person that they could have uh, really in, in everything that he would do for their, not just in, in the smuggling of contraband, but also with the concert that they eventually wanted to put on, how he was influential in that. And kind of as he was influential in, creating this persona of the tadpole angel mm. and this kind of persona that would carry on with PK for the rest of his teenage years at least I'm sure it continues on in the next story too I also think that like you there were some moments where I was like mm, he's kind of a shady character and it definitely seemed like we were being set up to or it was to make us believe that he was very much in it for himself obviously and that that makes sense like in a prison like that i imagine you're expending a lot of effort to survive yeah <laughs> especially given how low he was on the totem pole that there almost isn't space enough to spend any effort on anyone other than yourself but then like you're saying when pk's boxing ability becomes known he really invests a lot more in that and and in the other under 12s i think that pk was boxing with like all the other kids like jp became like the guy who trained those kids and captain smith recognized his abilities which i don't think he would have gotten had boxing not been had he not gotten that chance to to become part of the the team so to speak yeah absolutely and again it was just with PK, it was another situation where because of his upbringing, because of what he had been through, he does not judge a person based on how they look or their color of their skin. And he's not even taking advantage of Gil. He, he's seeing that this guy wants to train him. And instead of- being And knows trained, what he's talking about. And, and eventually all the kids come around. But at first, some of the other kids don't want to be trained by him because of what he is. And they see his work with PK and they, they lighten up to him. And as you said, Captain Smith- eventually lightens up to him where he sees what kind of influence and, and what kind of uh, benefits it is that he is bringing the boxing club. So it's just another situation where PK being who he is and not judging a person based on the color of their skin is kind of showing others that, Hey, you know, you don't Maybe have to this doesn't matter so much. Yeah. 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 And I think that that was interesting too about PK's like experience in the prison in general is that there were so few people like the only other guard that I can say had that kind of outlook similar to PK's was Gert who like didn't unnecessarily beat all the black prisoners and like I just can't imagine being in that scenario where you're not even a person to these people and it's 
bonkers because I think like the majority of the prison, if I'm not mistaken, were Africans. Is that accurate? Yeah, the majority. They would all go out to like work crews, right? Yeah, the majority of the prisoners were Black Africans, and it was run predominantly by Boers. So again, Dutch or German uh, white men, basically. Right. But yeah, I definitely got the vibe from him at first that it was like, like you said, kind of sus, a little like he's he's only in it for himself. But then just the way that they, the three of them, Doc, PK, and Jill Pete, like became this organization kind of of like the the prison underground the prison black market and dealing not just in the usual stuff but the like messages like things that are meaningful yeah like messages from home and even just like the the fact that there was like the earl of sandwich fund and mrs boxall and all of that stuff like coming into play it was like this whole organism yeah, and it was impressive to even the the thought process where they were like, okay, uh, once they stopped hiding the letters in the piano bench, okay, you're going to hide them in a fake bottom of a 40-gallon drum or water drum out of right. the garden. Uh, but, you know, obviously, if it's raining, you won't bring letters that day. And maybe uh, every third day or whatever, oh, randomly, yeah. don't, don't go outside uh, and don't bring letters. That way, we kind of throw off their the scent. There's a lot of that going on, which... I thought, again, was just really impressive and also believable because, again, Gil P, what he is, he's been in prison for decades. If anybody knows the system, system, it's going to be him. And my biggest concern getting to know him was that he was going to compromise Doc. Like, Doc was such a revered guest, as they called him, of the prison because he wasn't really a criminal. He was just there because he was German and we're at war with Germany. He's a bit of an illegal alien because he didn't have the right paperwork, even though he's been living in Africa for 20 years. But you know, he, he like has too many documents about the mine shafts and the hills. <laughs> he's he's a spy, spy, not a botanist. So I was really concerned the entire time that it was somehow going to fall back on Doc. So yeah. the day Doc was released, I was like, oh, thank God we got through that. But the other piece with Gil Pete I wanted to bring up, and we touched on Captain Smith, uh, who I think was Lieutenant Smith first. Oh, right. A couple times we meet, and again, with the foreshadowing and the writing, we meet Borman who is, I forget what they call him, but he he's one of the uh, prison guards, Borman, and he is like exceptionally suspicious and he has come down from another jail or he's been sent down from another jail and he is kind of on these three from the get-go. We don't know what's going to go on. The biggest and racist fuck ever. Super, super douchebag, super racist fuck. And when they do the concerto of Southlands, Gilpi... Donkey, donkey dick? Is that what they call him? Yeah, they call him. That just came out of nowhere. Sorry. <laughs> So when they do the concerto of the Southlands, Gil Pete doesn't show up and they both think there's something, uh, Doc and PK think there's something strange about that, obviously, because he had helped orchestrate this with the other, the tribes all learning the songs and learning where they would come in and how the thing would, how the concert would play out. And then when PK is putting back his boxing equipment that he used as the conductor that night, he sees Gil Pete's body on the boxing ring. As the reader we're able to easily put together that it was Borbin who did it. But I, what I really appreciated was Smith comes through and beats the living shit out of Borman in the boxing ring. As and a has all was... of the boxers there to watch. Yes. And even I think when it happens, I forget if it is Gert or if it is Smith, I think it is Smith who tells PK like there will be justice for this. 
I think it, yeah, I think it was Smith because Smith is the one who found him after he found okay. his body and was like hugging him and like. So I I appreciated all of that. Where again, like this, it was the growth of the other characters, not just PK seeing yes. Pete as a person and not just kind of the trash we thought they thought he was to begin. Yes. So to have that justice and that revenge come on Borman was a huge moment for me that I was like this better fucking happen and then when it did I was like thank you for letting that happen oh my god that was a really satisfying moment so moving on with PK's life and this is the part where we have so much to cover we'll see how it goes but <laughs> I wanted to talk about the, the big point is the myth of the tadpole angel uh, and how it continued to grow throughout PK's life I was wondering what you made of that myth kind of how PK saw it and also how the people saw PK. So I think that PK was intimidated by it in that I don't think he thought he deserved it, which I don't blame him for. I feel like that's one of those things that's like kind of a lot of responsibility. That might not be the right term. People are, it is, it's expectations. Expectations, exactly. People are expecting things of you that you may not feel like you are capable of delivering or deserving of. And I think that that's very much PK for being a fucking genius and like a boxing prodigy is relatively humble. I think he understands his, his limitations and his abilities, but he doesn't flaunt it necessarily i mean when it comes to fighting he's like i have never lost (laughs) which like great i mean i think at one time he had a dream about losing the welterweight competition and was like okay i've lost it now let's see what winning feels like and i'm like (laughs) anyway i think that is extremely intimidating to have people put these really lofty expectations on you and maybe not even fully grasp or understand what it means to them for you to be this person, this figurehead. And that's a lot. That that's that's intense. I don't know that I fully grasped or fully understood what that meant to the people. I mean, I think at one point it's explained that Basically, there's going to be this, I don't want to call it prophecy, but it feels a little bit like that, of a white man who's not a douchebag. Well, somebody somebody born outside of the tribes who would carry the spirit of a chief. Yeah, and and I, I guess <laughs> I understand that statement, but I don't really understand what that means, you know? <laughs> and I think that, that PK has a similar hang-up. You know, he he gets it. He hears what they're saying, but he doesn't maybe necessarily feel he's deserving of that or that that somebody else is really that person. And he's just yeah, it was, it in was, the right place at the right time. It was interesting because for him, he's not doing anything different than he should. Right. Do. He's basically treating these black people, prisoners, etc. like people, which is the, which they're not used to, which is the crazy thing. Right. And because of that, because of his upbringing, because he can speak multiple of their different tribe languages, because he also speaks Afrikaner and English, he is seen as one of the people. A uniting. Exactly. 
he is not of one tribe. He is of the English, but he speaks all of the tribe's language and not all of them because there's many more that there's he does not speak, but for his area, that's what he's seen as. And it gets, it's one of those situations where you have a preconceived notion of somebody and because mm-hmm. of that, you write the story to make sense to that. So he even mentioned that there would be things that Gil Pete did. There would be things that Doc or Mrs. Boxel was doing that but would it gets attributed to him. Exactly. Yeah. That was the Tadpole Angel. And for those who haven't read the book, <laughs> Tadpole Angel seems weird. So Doc was known as the frog because he would play music. Uh, he, the piano, his piano was brought to the prison when he was brought there and he was allowed to play it uh, whenever he wanted, basically. He was given free reign as long as he stayed on prison grounds. So in the dark of night or whatever, he would be playing music. So they started calling him the frog because he would be making music. And then because PK would come for lessons was his the reason him coming to the prison. He was known as the tadpole. Baby frog. <laughs> but then he was smuggling in the tobacco and he was smuggling in the letters tadpole angel. And he did say multiple times that in the Zulu language, it sounded so much more poetic. The translation is really crappy. <laughs> yeah. But it was one of those situations where, and again, I think it's also because of his age. Like if that's a 30 year old man, you're thinking, oh, he's like, he's helping us. He's like a revolutionist or he's one of us. But because it's a child, that's that's a little angel. That's like, like why would he be doing this for us? That's a little angel that's come to help us. I was going to say the second coming of Christ, but that's not really accurate because... Christ never came the first time. But Oh! <laughs> Sorry for the one follower we just lost. <laughs> but I mean, like a similar situation, like you're saying, this is a very like abnormal figurehead. Absolutely. And and I think that's what also builds to the myth, right? Yeah. Because it's, yes. like, that's the Well, coming. it's got to be real because it's this is be. so weird. Because why would a 10 year old act that way or a 12 year old? And then on top of that, because it is boxing prowess, mm. he, he is somebody who can. Powerful. Win. Power, yeah exactly he's powerful he's somebody who can win he can somebody he's somebody that can lead us he is somebody yeah. it's the same thing we saw with hoppy yeah chief it's mm. the same thing you saw with hoppy where all these people would were drawn to him were drawn to his light because of how good he was in the boxing ring well now the same thing is happening for pk where people are being drawn to him because he is a winner but also he's a caring person so right. was just, there was a lot of and again i believe it because those people are drawn <laughs> downtrodden uh and and they are looking for something to believe in and especially if you're looking for something and that person comes along who is fits the bill he fits the bill and he also is approachable to you like he is doing these things that you would not expect a white man to do an englishman to do and he is helping you and he is getting others to help you the earl of sandwich fund is helping you and you know all of a sudden and food is being sent to your families while you're incarcerated to make sure that they live and all of this is because of the tadpole angel it has nothing to do with mrs boxel and her little network of people that are working to make it work you know i you probably have a question involving this but i just need to have a little aside and say how much i love that he has this little network for lack of a better term of these people who are just so fully behind him in in everything i mean they're mm, i shouldn't say everything some more than others certain aspects like captain smith and all of the prison boxing team are fully behind him with the boxing dream and and his mrs boxel and mrs bornstein are or miss whatever boxel and bornstein are that'd be a law firm 
they're like behind him with the education and they're just he's just got this little army of worker bees that do really impressive shit and the earl sandwich one i just love that it's like they kind of pulled the wool over the eyes of the townspeople in the best way possible and that's i didn't have a question about that but it is one of those things as you're exploring this book the nucleus of people that he has around him that you were just touching on that like as you're as in spoilers we were talking about how he gets the list of clothes and uniforms Mm -hmm. that he needs for this private school this private secondary school and he, he, we can't make it work. His mother's a dressmaker and his grandfather is a retired army guy. We don't have the money. And all of a sudden the the boxing club and Captain Smith give him three pairs of shoes that he needs. And, you know, Mrs. Bornstein and Mr. Bornstein, they're getting him the fabric. So his mother his mom can takes sew the the... or whatever that he needs. And other people are pitching in for the socks and all this other jazz. So it was all these people because he was a town hero. It takes a village. It takes a village and that village helped him and he used that he village helped. to help the others as well. And that's yeah. part of the tadpole angel. Like it's just. Because it's not all about him. I think like he, we, we, we said before that like he has a lot of hardship in his life, but he also like uses some of that to his and others benefit, which is a pretty impressive turnabout. You know, there's, you could say that it's easy for him because he's really clever and like, oh, what luck that all this these townsfolk are like ready to provide for him. But like, I don't know, I guess I believe the tadpole angel myth. <laughs> but it also works out to like, you know, Doc sees a crying child on a rock and takes him under his wing. If that child rebukes Doc, mm. nuts happens. Because, you know, he meets Mrs. Boxel, the librarian, through Doc, because Doc donates a bunch of his books to the library, and they're always going there for the books, and then she sees how brilliant he is, and then through mm-hmm. school, he meets Mrs. Bornstein and Mr. Bornstein. It's just like, there's so much of that, which just, it all drills down to PK being a good person. Yes, and like that, that whole, like, drop in a bucket, and the ripples, and all that, like, he's the epicenter of the things in this town and the epicenter of like I guess you could argue a lot of the good things in this town and I just think it's really compelling that the protagonist is so impactful like I don't know that I've read many books where like there's quite so much influence like yeah the character the protagonist might be really good at this that or the other thing but that they're so far-reaching effects is I don't want to say abnormal but it's just really satisfying to read it was just like there was a lot that made me cry but there was also so many hopeful moments yeah and there was that power throughout the story that it was the power of one Taj is quietly signing that to all our video watchers that we don't have it's the one video <laughs> powerful it's, it's beautiful but there was that power throughout the writing that really moved you me it was more than just wanting to turn the page you were rooting for pk you were rooting for these people and like this is something that i know through history south africa history has been bad uh, mm. that's putting it incredibly lightly mildly yeah because i don't know i don't know the history i just know that it, it's not great so that was part of it too where you're seeing that the hopeful side of this oh, really thank you yeah the hopeful side of that and the the hopeful building of this this person this character and like of the people around him and that whole idea of the people 
coming around unifying. him. Yeah. The tribes unifying around him, I thought was super powerful. And this isn't, there was so much in here that I just couldn't break this down into our normal three or four questions that we talk about after spoilers. Oh but I do want to touch on like what you thought about the people, the whole fight that he ends up having, which ends up being Nanny's son before that, or with that, his whole relationship with Maury and everything that happens at school. Like there's just so much to get into. Oh my God. That I just want to keep talking about this book and we're going to go for three hours, folks. For real. Um, okay. So about the fight with nanny's son was amazing it ended i think better than i was expecting it to i thought that the son would maybe have more resentment and not get over it i mean totally should have had resentment like yes his mom went away from him to raise this white child that why the fuck would she give a fuck about him uh this white kid what were you going to say? It's one of those moments. It's one of those moments where before the fight, he asks Gideon. He's like, oh, Mandoma. Like, my nanny was named Mandoma. Is she any relation? He's like, she was my mother. You Bitch, please. took her from me. Like, that seemed like it was like, oh, shit, this is going to be his first loss because that was the yes. momentum he needed yes. to get over it. But I was worried. The thought, the idea that, which struck me, and we're kind of seeing this through PK, but also as Maury is seeing it as well, where it's an outside fight and the the stands are packed there's there's no room for anybody there's thousands of people here thousands of the people thousands Mm -hmm. of black africans here to see this boxing match go down and when they announce gideon they are singing for him and they're chanting for him and it's everything is powerful but when they announce pk there is singing for him and there is power for him and there is chanting and it is like they are accepting him. They want him to be this so bad. They're accepting him as one of their own. And like this moment that should have been so powerful for Gideon is giving power to PK as well. And also Maury is now opening his eyes saying like, holy shit, like I didn't, I didn't realize this. That was like when like later that happens later on when Maury like confesses to PK that like that moment was transformative for him and i was like damn like that is up i mean i can imagine that that would be that that whole situation would have been very impactful like just watching it and sort of i i can totally see the sort of like blinds being taken away from maury and him really fully understanding what was going on well not fully but you know what i'm saying like understanding that maybe he's been looking at everything all wrong all along And that was an interesting thing about their relationship was Maury is a Jew in South Africa, which is very uncommon. It's own thing. (laughs) But he's like a multimillionaire or his family is, but he still will like talk about how the Jewish people have been put down rightfully. So obviously during the time of Hitler, not a great time uh, to be Jewish, but in the same breath, then he will talk shit about the black African and put them down and PK without a fault, we'll call him on that, which yeah. I loved seeing over and over again, where it's, he's like, you are talking about how, how put down and how shitty exactly the same your people are. And then in the same breath, talking shit about the, about others. Like, and I think that that was just a really like impressive moment from a character growth standpoint for Maury to really recognize that there isn't much difference between the plight of his people and the plight of the people that he was witnessing all of that. And I I just, that was really, that whole thing was really impressive. But I do want to, because I kind of digressed there, 
the the fight itself between him and Gideon, I fully expected to not go PK's way just because like Gideon had that power of resentment, I guess, going for him. And the power behind or the or the support that both of them had was understandable and equally like I was just gonna use the word arousing, but that's not right. But like, you know what I mean? Like it 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 peaked you're interested it like had me invested in this fight and I think that the outcome was far better than I expected it to be in terms of them like Gideon was like we're brothers and I was like oh my god (laughs) like this is way way better of an outcome than I thought it would be and the fact that like PK was happy to have won because of course why wouldn't he be he's he's a winner but he also was like, I think a little disappointed because that perpetuated the whole tadpole angel thing, which I think he's still very intimidated by. I mean, at this stage and at every stage in this book, he's intimidated by that role that he has to play. And I feel as though he felt like he was stealing something from Gideon, even though yeah. it was like a fair, it was a fair fight. All of that happened legitimately. There was nothing about it that was sus, but well, and at that point, I think it's a little bit of his disconnection to the spiritual, to the spirit of mm. Africa, where he feels like he is doing them wrong by perpetuating this because he doesn't fully believe in it. Because as Gideon is saying, he's your brother, hey, you're my brother. And as the, the people are chanting his name because he won a boxing match, the whole point of this was to prove that the man is still the, you know, the boy and is still the tadpole angel. And he had to prove that in combat because that is how the people have been brought to find their leaders so it only makes sense that the chief would be able to shine through in in this combat with somebody who we know is the descendant of a chief so like well and and i do also appreciate that while that was i mean pk won the fight and the outcome was that tadpole angel was still tops he didn't negate gideon's place and his his bloodline and whatever else i think that that just goes to show his his ability to be humble i guess and to just like not want to usurp and i i just he's such a fucking good dude man yeah and that's one of those they always say that the best person to have power the best person to lead is the person that doesn't want it and that's that's who pk is he is to push that off every chance he gets but at the same token the whole reason he takes the fight is he realizes that he can't deny the people. Right. And he thought, thinks about throwing the fight to dissuade the idea of the tadpole angel, but he knows he can't do that. Right. He has to go out there and he has to perform it all. And, and what happens will happen. He will deal with that. So it's just like another, at this point, he's 15 years old and he's, you know, as wizened as a 50 year old man, like it's just incredible to see that character again. He is unbelievable in a lot of ways and believable at the same time. And that I just like, I, I, there were so many bits that I was underlining just to be like, this is so fucking profound. And this is profound. And that is profound. And I just like, I, uh, uh, uh. indeed, those were words. (laughs) So after the fight, we see PK is bawling and Maury cannot console him. Also, we didn't even talk about school. I I meant to bring up. Oh my God. Their whole thing with their scams and everything else that they're going in and like more. They make a bank. They'll bank, which is genius. It's one of those situations where, you know, all the kids would run out of money 
you know, the day before their, they, allowances. their next allowance, basically. So, okay, we'll loan you money and you'll give us 10% of your whatever. And it worked out, but like their little schemes and all this and PK's belief that he needed to pay his own way for all things. He needed to pay mm-hmm. for Solly Goldman. He needed to pay his own way to Oxford eventually. It obviously takes a huge uh, change in his life. If he was just willing to take handouts, his life would be a lot easier, but it's him saying like, no, I have to do this my way. Their whole time at, at school was just eye-opening and him continuing to mature, but mature in the way you thought he would, if that makes sense. Oh my God, That's yes. I saw it. I absolutely loved his friendship with Maury and just like the ways that they challenged each other and complimented each other were superb. I also really loved their like correspondence school, like textbooks they created and how they got into that argument with, with their professor or teacher or whatever about like Mrs. Bornstein's. I just, I freaking love it as like a total like school nerd who loves to go to class and shit. This was like, it was choice. I also just opened to a page where my margin note is very stonks. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I appreciated like the, the intellectual conversations that, Maury and PK had about money, about their business ventures, and just they were so impressive. I wish I had that that ability at that age. Like it just blows my mind. Yeah, it really impressed me throughout how much they just at every turn they <laughs> to make a buck because PK goes to school. the The village raises up to make sure he has his uniforms, but he has no spending money. And, you know, Maury says, oh, just wait till Wednesday. You'll get your allowance, basically. He's like, I don't have anything. And it's like, okay, well, we'll figure this out. And they do it based on sports books, basically, you know. And Maury takes that over where it's like, okay, we're going to mark down every fight. We're going to make sure we know what every fighter does, how they are, how they act, all this different stuff so that we can change the odds. And again, this is at this point, uh, what 12 13 year old kid well Uh, and that's the thing like all their schemes were like not necessarily douchey they were just clever it wasn't like they were explicitly taking advantage of other people they were just like we know the odds i mean it was yeah it's when you gamble you know the odds and chances are you won't win i underlined the making of money should never be left to chance like maury is like i'm doing my fucking research before we do this, before we get into anything. That was, I just, they they were just such a, they're such a good team. And they called it scams, but it was like schemes and all that. It wasn't, schemes makes it sounds a little bad, but uh, it was just all the different schemes that they had throughout school in order to create this money and set aside this money so that PK could get better at boxing and continue his goal. Like that's the driving force that I don't think we've mentioned enough to be the welterweight champion of the world. Like he wanted that money Yes, to to live day to day, but to in order to save up enough money so they could go to Solly Goldman, so he could continue his training, so he could be welterweight champion of the world. Like that is his driving force as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old. He just wants to keep getting better at boxing because he needs to be what Hoppy saw in him when he was five years old. That is some emotional intelligence that is just mind blowing for the I day. don't have that emotional intelligence. Right. Five, like insane. Oh my God. There were just like, there's just so much. There's so much about this book that I like, I just want to like, I don't even know. 
I I like I'm so disappointed that the movie is not <laughs> what I what I, what this book is because I want to like see these things, but I'm not going to. I agree. So after the fight with Gideon, he is unable to celebrate because he talks about this at other times too, where the people just have a feeling when they know something momentous has happened. And he has a feeling that Doc has passed and he returns to find a note that Doc has gone missing. He returns home to try to find him and then he is presumed dead. With the Crystal Cave in Africa, when they discover that, did you see that foreshadowing? Oh, hell yeah. Obvious. Yeah, that that, yeah. that was basically Doc was saying that he was giving up. And, and even though he... PK says like, oh, he was getting better. He seemed healthier by the time I left. It seems it that Doc was moving towards the goal of being able to get back there in order to die. I think as soon as they found that cave, I mean, like there was some moment. Yeah. I mean, like when they first found the cave and Doc like laid down and PK was like getting all freaked out. He was like, don't do that. It's like really scary. I've never thought about him dying, which like, okay. Really? He's like 87. Yeah. Get, get with the program. I get it though. Like, especially because Doc feels like such a, such a huge forever guy Um, that was a poorly constructed sentence but like he just he is a presence and i can fully understand pk not knowing what to do with his life when doc is not a part of it and it was interesting the juxtaposition between doc and his grandpa Mm. where i think his grandpa is is younger yep a little bit but doc is the one who influences him because his grandfather doesn't isn't able to make that connection with him. And like, he will, like I said earlier, he will tamp his pipe out for 10 minutes and make one or two sentences. And they may or may not be profound, but Doc is the one who takes him under his wing and is the one who leads him and and kind of molds him and is such a presence in his life that like, you knew it was coming. It was, oh yeah. When they found the crystal cave of Africa, that Doc's death was going to happen in this story. And it was just a matter of seeing how he would respond to it and how that would break him. Because like I said in the beginning, when we have Grandpa Chook, when we have Hoppy and we have Hetty, basically all come and gone in in a day's time separate, you know, three days separated by a day. I expect that with Doc, but Doc survives for like a decade or so with him to then have him ripped away is so much more powerful that that loss. Yes. Well, and I think too, like you, like you said, the, the grandpa Chuck and well, grandpa Chuck more so than the other two, but Hoppy and Hetty were very quick flashes, parts of his life, not a part of him the way that doc is a part of him. I think like everybody, everybody in town, everybody that knows the two of them, they were, they were the frog and the tadpole. Like that was, you don't have one without the other. And it's like, losing a part of yourself when oh man it was just I knew that it was coming and it was like I think very fitting the way that it happened where he had effectively the power of the people and understood that it happened from a distance like that and that was I don't know his spiritual connection to Doc but also like to the people and and their abilities but it was it was rough And I appreciated that he went through this like period of grieving that if, if he hadn't done that, I would have been like, yeah, it wouldn't have made sense. No. 
And especially later on when he goes back to the cave outside of the cave to see Doc's guidance, like it just, again, kind of reiterates how strong that connection was, which any of us with a friend could understand that, that that kind of need for counsel never goes away, whether they're still there or not. I want to talk about the power of one. Um, And PK, throughout this book, he discusses it and he works towards it. I was wondering what you thought the power of one was or what that meant to you through this book or what it meant to PK. I mean, I think it has a lot of meanings, like for me as the reader, for PK as the protagonist, but I love that it's a continuous theme throughout the book. And it's something that he doesn't necessarily like, it's not like he's striving to understand it. It's like things in his life reinforce it for him I mean I wish I could I'm sure I underlined some stuff where he talks about it specifically but just like the (laughs) I opened right to one so talking about I mean honestly like all the people who've passed through his life have given him a portion of of this feeling and it said he'd given me the power of one one idea one heart one mind one plan one determination so like his his goal to be the welterweight champion and his his striving for that goal and sort of coming into his own like i do think that for him at one point he talks about towards the end like shedding his sort of chameleon thing kind of learning to be himself like at after like when he's applying to be a road scholar he's kind of realizing that he is going in directions that other people are leading him, not necessarily that he has chosen. And that kind of gets him more focused on being the welterweight champion of the world and his own, under his own influence, which I think is again, sort of the power of one, like he wants to be the one to get himself there. And I just, I think it could mean a lot of different things. If whatever the moment (laughs) is, you can adjust it to be that. But I, I think that there's so much to be said for individuality but also the impact that a single person can have on the individual yeah for me and that the individual can have on everything else yeah for me it was the culmination of his life already you know those it's the 24 hours he spent with hoppy it's the life and death of grandpa chook it's the experience with Nkosi. It's it's everything that has come and gone, uh, all the schemes he's run with Maury throughout the years and everything he's learned with Doc and what he learned from the president. The power of one is your life's not just successes, but failures and kind of all these other imprints that you've had that form who you are. And so when you're faced with adversity, you don't just crumble. You know, you find that inner strength because of where you've been, where you've come from, the people who have touched you. And I think that's just what he finds over and over again. And as he like keeps depositing more of this into him uh, with the different experiences that he has, and he brings up, you know, it's not one of those novels where, you know, it says the power of one on page 300 and you're like, oh, there's the title. Titular. But it like definitely plays throughout and it's mentioned throughout where he is always hunting for that power of one. And for PK, the thing that I think just, it's like a mantra for him, obviously, but I think it stands out to his power. One first with the head, then with the heart that just comes up over and over again, that that's all I, that's what I will think about when I think of the power of one is first with the head, then with the heart. 
I appreciate too, there was like one moment where he was like on the train. I think it was after Hoppy had left, but he was like the train, the sounds of the train were like, yeah. And I just like, I think having a mantra like that, that is so powerful is incredibly helpful from like a psychological standpoint to have something to fall back on to remind yourself of is is incredibly powerful i agree so the last question and i also want to include the the ending in this question so Sally compared this book to forrest gump what did you think of the comparison and were there parts that you thought maybe stretched the believability of of the story so i honestly i know he said that but like i didn't I didn't necessarily get Forrest Gump vibes while I was reading it. I think maybe because I, I don't know, it's been a while since I've seen it. Like, I don't know. And maybe because like Forrest and PK are very dissimilar and also kind of similar. But you know what I mean? Like PK is this like savant. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess Forrest has some some clever qualities, but he's also a bit of a doofus. In any case... Yeah. I think that all of the different stories and experiences that we get to see PK go through were all just part of us watching his growth. So I don't, I don't know that it, I, yeah, I I guess my short answer would be no, I didn't get Forrest Gump vibes mainly because I think that with Forrest Gump, like, yeah, you see him when he's a kid, but like, it's all very speedy. Yeah, so for me, the connection I felt to it was that he seemed to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. Like meeting Hoppy by chance, being at that fight um, against Jack Hammer Schmidt, having then been trained later on in life by Captain Schmidt or Lieutenant Schmidt, uh, who had a connection to that fight. Uh, Nanny, and then having Nanny's son be Gideon, who he then fights later on in life, meeting... Uh, meeting Maury and their kind of schemes and all that stuff working out. It just seemed like there was a lot of... Luck? Yeah, or like grand... Yeah, luck. Because he was there for a lot of grand moments. And like he even talked about how, you know, the Earl of Sandwich Fund was like something that took a stronger hold and like started prison reform later on. And he was a pivotal part of that. And there was another time, I think maybe at one of his boxing masters or something, where like it was the first time apartheid was kind of like mentioned and like that becoming a thing that later on, obviously down the road. So it just seemed like he was involved in a lot of moments that had a bigger feeling, bigger um, impact. Yeah. Had a bigger impact than just him being there. And that's so kind I... of what I feel like the Forrest Gump compared to me okay. is because Forrest just kind of finds himself in all these things mm-hmm. that maybe he shouldn't be in. Well, and that's so I'm I'm kind of twofold on that. One is that I feel like if that's the situation, uh, if that's not the situation, no one's going to write a story about somebody who like yeah. does it. You know, it's sort of like with TV shows, like why do they keep inviting the bad guy onto the ship? Because that wouldn't make a good episode, you know, that kind of thing. But also, like, I think that that was what was so compelling to me about PK was that he was this epicenter. And he had this ability. I mean, he super freaking clever, super driven, super unifying in terms of his connection to the people and abilities and just his 
non-douchiness. I don't know. He was just one of those characters that drew other people to him. So it doesn't surprise me that he was amidst all of these big things. That's fair. Yeah, he was definitely a force of his own. The one thing for this question that I wanted to tie into the ending that I didn't find believable was the fact that the judge would be his diamond driller. Bro, so as that he, was mind blowing. <laughs> so as he goes to the, the copper mine, so he goes back to the cave outside of the cave of the cave, uh, Crystal Cave of Africa to seek Doc's guidance and basically realizes through this experience with a snake that he needs to go to the copper mines in North Rhodesia and because there he can earn enough money in a year in order to pay for his entire tuition at Oxford. So he goes to North Rhodesia, goes through the school as a super genius, obviously, and then is a grizzly bear, which basically he deals with cleaning out the funnel of ore and rock so that it can be collected at the bottom if it gets hung up. And that whole, I had to read that twice to understand the job of a grizzly man, because that seemed like fucking crazy. I don't know why you would do that. Um, Yeah. The whole mining experience, no thank you. Yes. So that seemed like a lot. But if a grizzly man is competent and can clear his funnel every night, basically it allows the diamond driller to fill the funnel again in the morning. So if you're a competent grizzly man, your your diamond driller loves you. And in this case, you would get a case of brandy every month from his diamond driller as a thank you. And he doesn't drink, so he gives it to his neighbor, the Georgian named Rasputin who was a beautiful uh, giant of a man. Who was a big grizzly of a man. Yes, who, as luck would have it, he ends up spending nine or ten months as a grizzly man. An accident happens, he is sent to the bottom of the pile. Thankfully, he is not crushed, and Rasputin spends his life literally undigging him, or digging him out from that fall. And then afterwards, he donates the last case of brandy back to the bar, but he is confronted by this guy who is crazy with the drink, which happens every once in a while. Turns out it's his diamond driller. Turns out it is the judge, and they have it out, which PK eventually beats him using this collective knowledge that he has had since he is five to now to to beat this much larger man, first with the head, then with the heart, and, and put him down so he is able to walk away. That part I thought was a little unbelievable. <laughs> um, I just like need to like pour one out real quick for Rasputin. Like, first of all, listeners, Rasputin is a gentle giant who legitimately saved PK from being raped because he's like the youngest person in this all male camp that clearly. We won't go into that. That are the worst. Yep, it's that. In any case, so they make, they have this friendship, mutual respect, whatever. It's fucking precious. I cried so hard. And it was just like this, it was like a little tiny paragraph of like, I literally wrote, no, Rasputin, <clears throat> in my margin. Like, he worked himself to death to rescue PK. And this is, I think, a really good representation of how charismatic, that's not quite right, because it's not like PK is trying to, like, get people to be his friend. I don't know. Yeah, I I think it it was just, like, the natural way of things that people are legitimately willing to give their life for him. 
That was so intense. And this was the moment where I was like, there's only like 10 pages left. When is he going to be the welterweight champion of the world? I was expecting the judge to kill him. I also was the judge. I was like, how else are we going to end the story? He fucking dies in this bar. uh, Right. I was a little worried about that. But I also at one point when they had been talking about who the their the diamond driller was that was above his grizzly, the name sounded familiar because there was at one point, like way early on when they talk about the judge back at school, they mentioned his name. And I was like, why does that, why is that familiar? And I couldn't figure it out. And then when there he's at the bar and the judge comes out and is all like, whatever, he realizes who he is. I was like, no, <laughs> like fucking, no, I literally wrote, what? Uh. And that fight, that fight was intense. I agree that it was a little too on the nose in terms of like full circle but i also feel like it was incredibly satisfying and and also like the way that he had courtney has written the fights the boxing matches was really interesting this was like pretty fucking brutal when the judge like punches something and his hand like breaks and bones like that was gnarly and then when he like goes to town on his swastika tattoo and is like yelling at him and he yelled you killed grandpa chook i was like <laughs> you fucking did it yeah. yeah i was like ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but you you feel me like that was I I I was like, that's the end. But also, I was very excited that that was the end. It did <laughs> it seem felt, abrupt too. Like it, I, it did seem abrupt. Yeah. It seemed abrupt, but it felt it was weird. I was like, wait a minute, what? But also, nicely full circle. Thank you for that retribution. <laughs> it was kind of like a movie where the guy, the guy, yes. the bad guy, walks off. Like that's what happened. You just don't see that in a book usually. So it's just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, and then and then when I was like looking up on goodreads all the other bryce courtney books that i want to read i was like oh my god thank god there's a second one i am very curious to know if sully has read the second one and what his thoughts are on it i have not heard him talk about it so i assume he hasn't oh, so look well, at maybe it, that sully. it's not good or he just hasn't read it but like, i assume he just hasn't read it. I, I this does not lead you to know there's a second book no it I really was the same way like when i put it on goodreads and it said book number one i was like wait what i yeah I, I, yeah, I, that's so inarticulate, but I, I had so many feelings towards the end, like the last couple chapters, I was like, there is no way. Like when, even, even when he started at the mines, I was like, okay, we're talking about yeah, this yeah. for a fucking long time. Do I care? And then as soon as he was like, no, I think I'm going to stay. I was like, you're going to fucking die. You're going to yeah. die and you're not going to be welterweight champion of the world. Like get your shit together. <laughs> don't tempt fate. Okay, really listen cool. to me. Get the fuck out of those minds. Get the fuck out. And then, like, I again, this is something I appreciated about the writing was there was little snippets of, I guess I'll call it foreshadowing, where he was like, and that was when it got me. And I was like, okay, I thank you for that heads up. Now I know what to expect, but I still was expecting worse than what happened. And like, yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced something quite as well done as Bryce Courtney's like foreshadowing aspects, like the way that he was able to write things in throughout the entire book that made you understand that this was someone recapping something, but also still feeling like you were very in each and every moment. 
Yeah. I was, I fucking love this book. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I had, for additional spoilers, I just had his mother that we just never really touched that had a chance to touch on her on these questions Uh, for me i thought it was interesting because non-conventional people meaning doc Mm. mrs boxel miss bornstein Mm -hmm. uh gil pete had an effect or an influence on his life and his mother didn't like the biggest influence she had on his life was that she wasn't around so that he was raised by nanny. So he is more brought up around the people. Right. And then when she was back in his life in Barberton, she was yelling at him to to convert and be a born again Christian to the point where he just didn't want to do that so much that that decision cha- affected his life a little bit as he just didn't want to be born again, basically. And I feel that viscerally. <laughs> I absolutely feel that I can relate on a pretty solid level with that feeling. I think that he handled it like with such grace and humor that reading about it was amazeballs. Like his, the way that he, he talked about pastor, whatever his name, pastor Mulvery, and how his front two teeth wanted to escape all the time. And he, he just, I, yeah, I had a lot of feelings about that aspect of things and how steadfast he was in his understanding of what that meant for himself and what that meant for his mother. And I appreciated the grandfather's reaction to it all as well. <laughs> and just the the people in town, you know, like that the church was sort of like the church, <laughs> And kind of, I don't know, just the whole environment and his, I had this page flag from, from before, but it's him and and Doc discussing God. And I just so appreciate Doc's outlook on it. And I think, oh, obviously, like, as we mentioned, Doc was incredibly formative in terms of his ethos and his osmosising of things to to PK and PK really I mean obviously he thinks for himself don't get me wrong but I think he understands Doc's knowledge and experience of of the world and he respects it a lot he does yeah yeah and I so this was just like this is where I'd written word in the in the margin but they're discussing God and Doc says, um, PK, God is too busy making the sun come up and go down and watching so the moon floats just right in the sky to be concerned with such rubbish. And it goes on and on and on. And then he said, it's better to just get on with the business of living and minding your own business. And maybe if God likes the way you do things, he may just let you flower for a day or a night. But don't go pestering and begging and telling him all your stupid little sins. That way you'll spoil his day. Absolutely. And I just like, that is chef's kiss. I just love Doc's, he's a live and let live kind of guy. And obviously PK is very much like that as well. But I just love the outlook that Doc provided for him. Yeah, and I love Doc's uh, example of the cactus that flowers once every hundred years in the dead of night in Mexico for, for that one night. Like that is a sign of God. 
Yes. The rest of this is just don't worry about it. Yeah, that was the that was the bit in between those two. That was I it? There you go. So yeah, well, as you were reading that, I was nodding my head. I was like, oh yeah, yeah this is a great uh, audio podcast where I nod my head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's like, yeah, I think it was just interesting because nor in normal stories, the mother or father or whatever is looked upon to be that guiding light, and in this one, it was almost the exact opposite, where we look to others to guide us. And we we kind of just accepted that our mother was our mother, and all right, good for well, you. Well, and I good thing. feel like for PK, his mother was not. It's not that she wasn't interested in being a mother, but she wasn't interested in being a mother. She, like she's interested in herself and advancing their social status and doing things that that she thinks are the right way to do things. But not necessarily, I mean, she's proud of her son, but she doesn't respect him. And she doesn't see his value or his... As a person. Um, well, that and his, like, his... Um, potential. Potential. She doesn't see... She, thanks, Barry. She doesn't see his potential. She doesn't see his potential until it's pointed out by millions. Like, she doesn't see his book smarts. She only cares that, oh, if he played piano... He could be seen as, you know, uh, our social status as cultured. She doesn't see the boxing as anything. She doesn't see that he is so profound in a lot of different areas. She doesn't see that he is smarter than, you know, the people four grades below him. Because- I also think she was like pretty mentally not there in some respects. Like, and maybe I, I imagine this is like a anxiety depression kind of deal which is why she'd gone away when she went away and I I get it but it's also just really disappointing for PK like you're saying to not have that actual familial connection like he kind of has something with his grandpa but it's not it's not in any way shape or form similar to what he's getting out of a relationship from Doc or even from old Mr. Bornstein or Miss Bornstein or Miss Boxhall like all of these people who are not of his blood that care so deeply for him. And then his mom, who is just so focused on being born again and bringing other, you know, come to Jesus people. Yeah. So the last people, so we've gone long winded that I feel like deserve a shout out would be D and dumb. The servants of his mother that do end up coming when Nanny does not uh, to Barberton. But also to me, it's just the relationship that they had with PK where they looked out for him. Uh, They made sure he had dinner hidden uh, in his bed chamber when he was gross. (laughs) In his chamber pot when he went to bed without dinner. Without supper because he he wouldn't accept Jesus. Uh, But also their care for Doc's cabin and and also how- Doc in general. And Doc in general, and then how PK made sure to take care of them, whether it was getting the sewing machine with some of the earnings that he got from uh, Maury and his scams, or making sure that Doc's uh, house was left to them instead of him after Doc passed. Just, they were there, they were an important part of his life, um, and they just cared for him, and they were like... I want to say they were like 12 when he was seven. Yeah, so they weren't that much that older than him. Kind of like older sisters, but because they were Black Africans, they were seen as servants. And and he saw them kind of more as, as he grew, I think he saw them as more as people that should be cared for and that cared for him. 
just kind of a, a bigger embodiment of that chosen family that he had. Definitely. And I think that like that was a connection to the people that he I mean, obviously, he had that in sort of many forms. But I think that that was one that was they were basically family, like you said, found family, but still that they they truly cared for him. And they were just so cute, especially when they would like when Doc was in prison and they would go like what once a week or every Sunday Sunday to clean his house and they were like the one time that was it Marie from from the hospital that he like brought one Sunday with them and they were like because she kept telling them what to do and then he realized like oh shit this is like their time to shine I'm not gonna do this anymore it's just so cute so cute I just wanted to make sure we mention them because they do play a part in the story they're not quite pivotal but they are there throughout and they do mean something to his growth i didn't have anything else for spoilers do you have anything else before we uh no i just i just want to gush about the book well done sully so (laughs) on that note uh we are going to move out of spoilers and before we leave this book we do have to give it a grade our grading system is based on the dnd d20 so one is bad 20 is good and then we will add or subtract points to the book based on a modifier or character ability from the game taja you are up first this week what do you got i gave this a nat 20 i'm shocked i know i like barely have the words to describe how much i like this book the characters were incredibly compelling um the story was really interesting it was very well written and extremely poignant <laughs> just the though his love for south africa really came through his love for the people i'm gonna start crying it was the first book i've ever like made notes in the margins of for a podcast i mean i've done it before but for school so for funsies this is the first time i've done that because there's just there were so many moments reading it where i was like damn and I I really thoroughly enjoyed his writing. I'm very much looking forward to finding some of his other books. I'm very appreciative that he's written so many. And I'm excited about reading some that are about Australia because that is also my love. And yeah, I just, there were some very sad moments. Sully was not wrong. I was incredibly emotional about a lot of things, but there were also just so many happy things about it i was telling bears you should really read this and he's like i don't know that chicken dies i'm not sure that i want to read it <laughs> and i get that because that was sad but there's just it's just such a lovely story and such lovely characters that i yeah i've already told a bunch of people about this book I, like even midway through i was like i'm reading this really amazing book y'all should read it <laughs> so yeah i'm giving it a nat 20 i'm I was going to give it a plus two for insight, but I'm thinking now I'm going to change that to intelligence, just a straight intelligence check for a 22. I think that insight is also kind of applicable, but like intelligence, emotional intelligence, his like PK is fucking brilliant. Doc is brilliant. GLP was brilliant. Like there's just a lot of really intelligent people. Maury also very fucking smart. And I, I just, just this amalgamation of really amazing characters a really amazing story and very emotional very emotional it was yeah fucking awesome 22 boom 
Well, I hate to agree with you. Just kidding. <laughs> I'd love to agree with you. So for me, it was also a nat 20. I, I think th then this book just blew me away. And then learning that it was a debut novel blew me away even more. Um, it's one of those situations where I think there's a great message in it. I look at this with their grading system. I've said this before, where I say, okay, what can I take points away from it for? Mm. And I, I don't, I don't come up with anything. So um, for me, it just was such an incredible story about a person, but also just, just being a good person, just, just not like looking past the color of somebody's skin or their social status or who they were defined by not being dragged into um, religion or anything else that uh, could skew your view and just being a good person. And uh, it was a page turner. I just couldn't put it down. I really wanted to know the action sequences like you touched on were incredibly well-written, whether it was in the boxing ring or outside of it made you want to like, as soon as I knew a fight was coming up, I was like, well, I can't put it down. So I get to, <laughs> I need to know what happened. Uh, so it was just, it seemed like everything I can understand why this is such a strong novel. I wish it was more well-known because if it weren't oh. personally stumbling upon this in North Carolina, I feel like I would have never heard of it. I feel like this is not something we hear a lot about in the States. So for me, I did a plus two for nature. And my thought for that was uh, both human nature and also just nature, nature. And my thought was more nature as spirit. So the spirit of Africa, the spirit of a person and, and kind of seeing how that can affect and change somebody, whether it's just being more open to it or being more involved in it, whether it was just your spirit as a person being more open to the people around you, regardless of who they are, whatever, and the spirit of nature around you just becoming one with your environment and your country. So I just, this has, I mean, I don't want to say it has nothing to do with what you were just talking about, but like this, the spirit and like the, what we were talking about before with like the power of the people and how they can like, not premonition, but like they knew things before they were, or they know things about things that happened many, many miles away. I just want to point out that what we didn't talk about, how that terrible, terrible racist guard who killed Jill Pete dies of ass cancer. <laughs> That's true. I'm laughing. That's so bad because they like basically cursed him and I, he fucking deserved that. And I just needed to say that that was a really like speaking of nature and the whole spiritual nature of things like that was a good comeuppance for that guy. And I feel like we should have mentioned something about that. Nobody likes Borbin. He's a piece of shit. Oh, he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and he converts at the last minute thank you marie for that of course yeah, and like that. i did like how that was our tie-in like marie Brad yeah. converting some guy and he's like wait that's borman and yeah like, i was realize like... it as pk realizes it um so yeah so that's 22 for both of us so you know never read this book it's obviously oh not very good everybody um, read it right now read the book and hopefully you listen to these i i thought about doing this podcast without spoilers because i just I felt like it's from 89. I feel like it's a story we don't hear enough about. And I feel like you need you need to know this whole picture. You need to know the story. Uh, shout out Sully for recommending it. Yes. Shout thank out you. one last time, Grandpa Chook, of course. Poor one oh out. my God. What a crazy Poor one out for Grandpa Chook. So on <sighs> that note, baby. we're going to move on from the book and we're going to close out with segments. And we have a what we missed from the last episode, which Tasha brought up in our right. email. So Tasha, so what did you miss? So listening to the last episode, I don't know how neither of us saw this in the moment reading it or talking about it. But while I was listening to it, I realized that 
on the mantle where Ted had kept the picture of his parents and the music box and the Russian nesting dolls. The Russian nesting dolls were basically a metaphor for his situation. Like there's an alt, as the reader, you're discovering an altar inside an altar inside an altar. And it's just so, I think, again, as we talked about last episode, that this is a book that almost requires a reread because there's so many easter eggs so to speak that you'd probably pick up on that you didn't the first time around and that is one of them like I wonder how often that nesting doll is mentioned and what happens with it I remember at one point I don't remember who it was exactly it's narrated like the narration we were reading but the nesting dolls had been like thrown on the ground and they were like all in pieces and like maybe there's more to pick up from that than what I got the first time but I just can't, it was like a moment where <laughs> it was, it was just so right in front of your face that I feel silly for not having recognized it as I was reading it. And you say it's a moment, but I didn't even recognize it until you pointed out an email. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's such a great metaphor. Right? So, um, no, it was a great point by you. And as soon as you said it, I was like, damn, that makes so much sense. But yeah, I did not, I did not see that. So, And it makes me wonder about other things. Like, was there something about the picture frame? Was there something about the music box that I also missed? But I maybe there is. We will never know unless we reread it, which maybe. I guess so. So uh, on that note, Tasha, um, what are you, let's go to current selection. What are you reading or what have you read? Well, I am still reading Deal Breaker. Uh, we've been watching so much Voyager that I haven't really been reading. Too much Voyager! There's not too much Voyager. That's not a thing. But yeah, I'm still reading that. It's still really good, obviously, because Harlan Coben is a master. I'm still listening to The Great Hunt because that's a fucking long book. So it's going to take me a while. I'm still really enjoying it. There are... Have, are you reading it? Did you read it? No, because I am... Uh, I'm trying to read 100 books this year. So I've got to read a book every four days or less at this point. Holy fuck! make it so um no i cannot pick up the crayon that will be too dense oh my god russell i'm like nervous for you i've already reached my goal which was a low 60 a low 60 but you have a low 60 and a job i have a full hundred and not a job so that's true i feel like maybe that is even not really 100 is a lot in any case there are some parts like the part that i'm at right now in the great hunt i'm like it's a little cringy oh We won't go into that right now. In any case, I'm finding it more of a struggle to like listen like excitedly about. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I got some books from Nern the other weekend that are now adding to my TBR. We bought, I bought some books. I don't know. There's just a lot. I don't. Books everywhere. Books everywhere. Yeah. For me, I read uh, Fight Club, which it was exactly. It was Fight Club. Yeah, which was kind of. Uh, sad, I guess, in a way. I didn't, I don't know what I was expecting, but you know, sometimes the book is different than the movie, and I saw it, yeah. every, so it was free. So I figured, what the hell? And it was just exactly like that. So there were points where, like, I guess it would be like reading the last house on Needless Street again, where it was like, uh, he mentions multiple times, you know, because Tyler knew this, I knew this, meaning mm. Tyler, and obviously for the reader, it's like, oh, they're just friends, but as somebody who knows the story. You're like oh because he's you know uh has the two personalities so there obviously wasn't that big shock at the end when he was right uh so it just it was it was a story it was it like i said i really enjoyed fight club the movie so it just kind of was it was that 
and it did just you... didn't have the same feeling because I knew the ending. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Did you feel like there were any visuals or descriptors that that gave you no. different feelings? No, it was, it was like straight up. How much it felt like the book. Wow. They're like there were certain parts where it's like, wait, is this how it happened? And then like later on, like getting the fat to make soap, I was like, I feel like there was a little difference in how they did that, and then later on they did it how they did it in the movie where they oh, like, like a, okay. whatever a medical disposal thing yeah right. so it was like i was like oh okay no they still just like pulled from that they just didn't do the other thing all right, right. so there's a lot of that and it had been a while since i'd seen it but still that's a movie that really st- it was a great movie so it's well that- and like you said you can't really like go into that if you know the surprise ending right it takes you away can't really read it without yeah yeah so it is what it is. The other book that I just finished this morning was A Gentleman in Moscow. And I had seen that all over Twitter recently and on Goodreads. It came out in 2016, but it seems like everyone was talking about it now. I really enjoyed it. And it's the story of this count who is put under house arrest in a hotel in Moscow. And he lives there for decades. And it's about his life. And Whoa. For something that doesn't change settings. It was surprisingly good. Things change around him. It was very good. Very captivating. Um, I could not put it down. The one thing was the time just kind of fast forwards where it's like, okay, now we're in. It it has it on the titles, but it's like 1936. And I'm like, wait, where did we just come from? Right. So that was a little bit confusing for me. But was it a gentleman in Moscow? A gentleman in Moscow. Hmm. I have that was another one I found at the dump and actually shout out me that was uh, yeah. from the Chesterfield library that the binding had broke on it and I glued it back together it's hey. not it's not perfect but you know it's, it's readable it's it is readable and I didn't feel like I was going to rip it apart every two seconds so that that's was nice. nice so that is what I read again by this time next episode 14 days i'll have to read at least three more books so (laughs) no pressure on the end of the year but uh that is it for current selection we now move on to uh random recommendation and this one is truly random as i was trying to think of books that i read before we podcasted before i could read uh goodreads on twitter or wherever else um this one popped up on me because i had read five or six of them in this series i don't remember but it was something i came across while i was in europe because it was part i had like signed on to the amazon library and it's part of their free stuff so the book is the call it's called the land and that is the overarching title so the first book is called foundling uh it is chaos seeds book one by aleron kong so what was interesting about this is it's a lit rpg story that follows the character Riker as he is sucked into a fantasy world that must build himself from the ground up. So basically, if you like playing World of Warcraft or the old Diablos or something like that, this book is basically like reading your experience through the game where like legitimately there would be times where you'd be like, you, I leveled up and here's my stat block. Interesting. Like, I gained one to charisma. I gained one to strength. I gained two to my battle stance, whatever. Um, and that would happen and then the story would continue and like he meets different people in this fantasy world and it just continues as Riker is just trying to fulfill his destiny and the destiny of this world so it was really easy to read there were some times where I was like "Mm, you can tell this is kind of an inexperienced writer but for the most part it is an engaging story now I think I've read all those books were out at once and there was a new one coming and I never went back to read the new one. So whatever that tells you, it tells you. But if you're into that kind of like 
level up scenario and into that kind of gaming, I feel like you would enjoy that. Now, yeah. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we actually were given lanyards by him, by Alron Kong at Dragon Con. I don't. Oh, so, um, I don't know if you have yours or not, but after I had read this, so that was like 2019, uh, we went to Dragon Con that year. And while we were waiting in line at the Sheridan, we were wrapped around the building and they were handing out these random lanyards that says the land gnomes rule. And oh my like, God. Yeah, I read this book. Like when the fuck is the next one coming out? And they were like, Oh, the author's right there. You can yell at him. And around the next corner, he was also handing out lanyards. Did so, you yell at him? Uh, I said, Hey, when's the next book coming out? And I don't remember what he said. And he said, Yes, probably. Hey, you'll fuck yourself. Stop yelling at me. So just an interesting thing. That was one that popped up. Again, I read like five or six of them in a row, whatever was out. And it was just, it was just a different type of writing. If you're into that kind of world, if you're into that kind of gaming, you might actually enjoy that. So it's called Brand. Yeah, it sounds like you might have reason. to be into that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it was still like it was a fantasy story, but it sure. dealt with that kind of leveling up stuff. So But I think like it definitely would add something like you're saying to absolutely so that's why we call it random it's going to get more random as we go folks yep but on that note it is getting late you are getting tired and we must talk about what's on the next podcast so on the next show we have got one that has been in our hopper for a while it's been one uh that has been staring at us and we haven't read so we are going to read it folks and that book is half sick of shadows by laura sebastian Hodges is very shiny. Mine's a library book. So for this one, it is the Lady of Shallot reclaims her story in this bold feminist retelling of the Arthurian myth. So we will you know how I like a strong female lead. And I believe it was, uh, as you said, there is a quote from Tamora Pierce on it. Uh, yeah. Tamara Pierce. My girl. So that is what brought it to Taj's attention. So we will cover that on the next episode. But for now, you've hung in there, folks. This might be our longest episode to date, but we really love this book. We wanted to talk so much about it. So we thank you for sticking in there. But for now, this has been the ABC Pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. Keep, Keep reading. reading.